Welcome back to the Homes at Home podcast, the only Great Lakes podcast recognizing the profound impact Chadwick Boseman had on young black men and women. His portrayal of heroes like Jackie Robinson and Black Panther showed millions of children a hero that looked just like them. He showed the positive influence you can have on the world while fighting a personal and private battle. So to you, I say, be kind and be loving to others. You do not know the battle that each person faces. Wakanda forever. It's Sunday, August 30th, and I sit down with Tad Walters for a long, long discussion about all things Quidditch. He regales us with all the teams he's played for, how he helped set up a Quidditch scholarship at Columbia, his thoughts on snitching, his love for Nathan Digman, and so, so much more. So put on the gumbo and listen on. Welcome back to the Homes at Home podcast, the only Great Lakes podcast. I am your host, Matt Dwyer, and joining me this week is Tad Walters. Tad, hello. Hey, Matt, how you doing, man? Doing well, doing well. We already recorded this intro, and <laughs> now we're going to do it again because Tad has bad internet. So we, we talked, I, I want to have this same conversation again because I liked your answer a lot. Uh, you said you were living the dream before, and I talked about how that's like one of those like weird social contract things where people say like, oh, living the dream, or it's going when they want to tell you things are bad, but they give you like an out so you don't have to talk to them about how their life is bad. But you feel that you genuinely live the dream. Yeah. Uh, as I said before, I think, uh, and I s- it came from a, a woman I work with who every morning I'd see her at 6 a.m. And, you know, there's our all line cooks. So, you know, a lot of them are all tired from working a second job or from being out drinking all night or what have you. And so, like, everyone's, like, tired in the morning. It's, like, 6 a.m. And I'm just walking in the kitchen, like, you know, bright, bushy-tailed. And they'd be like, hey, Dad, how you doing? I'm, like, living the dream. And it's just, like, it's that idea of it being ironic and sarcastic is, like, almost counterintuitive to, I think, who, like, I am as a person, like, my bubbliness and... Uh, I think just like, especially in the kitchen, uh, where I think I'm a little overly like positive. Um, uh, I think, uh, I, I do mean it. I really do mean it most of the time. There are days where I'll, I'll have a bad day. I'll be tired. I'll be in a bad mood. And someone will ask me how I'm doing and I'll say it. And it definitely carries that same like ironic, sarcastic connotation. But more often than not, I really feel good about what I'm doing with my life and the day that I'm having. Uh, and so I usually am living the dream, honestly. So it feels good to say most of the time. Yeah. And as we discussed before this, you know, most people are not feeling this way. Yeah. Uh, we talked about the pre-COVID times versus now. Uh, we were just getting into it. How has your life been post-COVID? Oh, man. Uh, it's been interesting. As I was uh, saying before on this uh, earlier intro that will never get released uh, separately, like a blooper reel or something. Uh, I, um, I am a line cook. I'm an aspiring chef uh, trying to work my way up in Chicago. And so when... Uh, COVID first happened, the stay-at-home order happened in Chicago. I ended up uh, being temporarily furloughed, which and then became uh, actually just laid off. Um, and so for a while, uh, I felt guilty about it, but I mean, I was making more money on unemployment than I was making working 60, 70-hour weeks between two jobs and restaurants, um, which I've been doing between 60 to 80 hours uh, since I've been 23, um, which has been really hard to, you know, stay in shape for Quidditch, to play Quidditch, um, to do other stuff. Like I do comedy as well in my spare time. Um, and so it's, it's, it's hard. It's hard to kind of juggle all that with working so much. So it's been kind of nice to have that break and to kind of get paid more for it. 
Um, but as I said, I've been doing it for a couple of years, so it felt good to just really be able to have a break and take time to kind of like devote stuff, um, devote time to stuff that I really like, like watching Quidditch film and, um, you know, keeping a rapport with the college kids I coach and, you know, through summer, um, and making sure we're all learning and growing and ready to play Quidditch whenever that happens again. Uh, so it's been nice through that. Um, I did just recently get a job again, uh, cause the nice unemployment ended, uh, and I need to go back to making money. So uh, outside of that, I've been back to work. Um, it's not too bad. Uh, it's not nearly as kind of scary as I thought it would be working in a kitchen uh, during COVID. Everyone just wears a mask and, you know, uh, just takes care of themselves. So uh, it's overall, it's really not bad. Um, it could be a lot worse. As I said before, I'm really fortunate for the opportunities to be able to qualify for unemployment and for able to do that for, for so long when a lot of people, for whatever reasons, couldn't do it. Um, or couldn't get unemployment or had to work be, to, you know, like make ends meet. So really fortunate in that aspect. So, I mean, I'll, I'll take that where I can get it. Man, just hearing you talk about it, like your attitude is so, I, I would feel crushed in your position. Like I am, I am super fortunate that I have been working a nine to five and I was able to do my job from home. I've never had to apply for unemployment. Just like I have lived a charmed life in that perspective. And like to, to hear you talk about it, and I hear it from others too, like, oh yeah, I got furloughed, made more money uh, from unemployment than I did from actually working my job. Like that's soul crushing. Yeah, it, it definitely made, as I said, I felt bad at first because I mean, I, I don't know, like it's just not how, I was like raised, I grew up, like my parents are both extremely hard workers and had multiple jobs when I was growing up. Um, and so like, that, I don't know, like that was just something I had always just seen, like they work hard. And even though I know they wanted me to not work nearly as hard as they did, you know, that's why they worked that hard. Like I really enjoy like the kitchen life. I'd really like to be a chef one day, maybe at my own restaurant. Um, and this is kind of like, I don't know, like the process for doing that. But it sucks that so many restaurant workers that are honestly like, one of like the huge institutions of America, you know, are like getting paid so little for what is like a really, really stressful job, especially at like the high level in like higher end restaurants and fine dining restaurants. There's like a ton of like substance abuse. Uh, there's a ton of like, uh, like mental health issues, um, like a lot of depression, um, a lot of suicide. Uh, it's really hard. It's hard. It's stressful. You don't get paid a lot and you get treated poorly in most places. So it, it can be really tough. Our system is an absolute nightmare. <laughs> That's it. Just it's like what I repeat to myself every single day. Now it's the worst. Uh, but we can we can save the depressing talk for now and instead <laughs> Sorry, really talk a little now. more about Quidditch. Let's let's start off with uh, your Quidditch journey, as we do every <laughs> week. Uh, how did you get started with the sport? Yeah, man. Uh, I first saw the sport. Um, I think I remember seeing like glimpses of it in high school, like not the sport, but like I think seeing it like online, like hearing that it was a thing. But uh, I did, I was not super familiar with Harry Potter as a kid. Um, so when I got to college, I remember I really wanted to play a contact sport again. I played football in middle school and high school and it was very bad. Uh, I really didn't like the culture behind it, and that was kind of part of the reason that I didn't want to get better, is because there wasn't a good system in place to do that. Same thing with baseball. Growing up playing little league in middle school. I uh, just did not enjoy the culture around it and it gave me no incentive to want to get better. Um, uh, and so in college, uh, I really I really missed playing contact sport. I hadn't played one in two or three years. Uh, I actually initially wanted to play rugby. And I signed up for rugby and they were like, yeah, man, we practice every day at 5 p.m., like be in the quad at 5 p.m. every day. And I was like, well, I'm dedicating myself to this. This is what I'm going to do. I showed up for the first two weeks of school every day at 5 p.m. and they never had enough people to practice. 
And I was like, man, forget this. It's not organized, whatever. And then I saw a sign that said Quidditch, like, practice. And uh, it said full – and I didn't know really what it was. It said full contact on the poster. And I figured it was something, like, rugby-esque or, like, cricket. Like, something, like, European, right? And I was like, whatever. I'll check it out. And I show up and I see people on brooms and I instantly am like, oh, it's the Harry Potter sport. And I'm, like, still pretty wary, especially when I have to use the broom. I'm like, this is lame. And especially at that point, I mean, I was no athlete, especially people that remember me back then can remember. Like, I was the furthest thing from being a quote-unquote athlete. But, um, like, even just by having played sports growing up, I just had so much more athletic experience than, like, almost all the players out there. Uh, and it, like, instantly showed. And it was, like, kind of cool to be able to be like, man, uh, I'm good at something. <laughs> um, and so... That just like kind of just hooked me in instantly, and then I was like, I was tackling people, and everyone was like amazed that I could like tackle like a normal person, and they're like, oh, like stick around, you know, we play other schools, and I was like, I can tackle other schools, nerds, that sounds great. And this is coming from like one of the biggest nerds himself. I'm a dweeb at the end of it, at the end of the day. So um, that's how that started, um, and then from there on, like within the year, I was like, it became super invested. I was traveling to tournaments, playing on mercenary teams in the southwest back when that was still a thing in official tournaments. Um, and going out and seeing, like, A&M, like, back in their prime, seeing that Texas team uh, back in their prime. Our first tournament was the Mardi Gras Cup in the spring of 2012. And that was where we saw what would basically be the World Cup 6 team that won nationals for the first time. And they they done squished us, man. They slaughtered us in that tournament. And so to, to recount to uh, people listening, you went to Loyola, New Orleans, right? Mm-hmm. I went to Loyola, New Orleans. Uh, go Wolfpack. Uh, are you from Louisiana? I actually have no idea where you're from. <laughs> and a lot of people don't. I feel like I rep New Orleans so hard that people just assume I'm from Louisiana. Uh, I was actually born and raised in Texas. Uh, I spent time both in the suburbs of Houston um, as well as out in, like, East Texas, like, the actual, like, country boonies uh, is where my dad lives. My parents were divorced. So spent a lot of time in those two places. Um, got a lot of interesting perspectives. Um, and then, yeah, I went to college in New Orleans uh, because it was one of the schools that had free applications online. Uh, and they also gave me the most financial aid. So And then I was also like, New Orleans sounds fun. And, yeah, I went and I had a great time. And then I stayed there a couple of years after and then... I moved up to Chicago. So overall, not a bad stop off point. Okay. Uh, so you spent uh, all of your undergrad with the uh, Loyola team. Mm-hmm. Uh, we played each other sure did. the second year. Yeah. And at World Cup 6, Division 2, uh, we we were in the same pool. Uh, pool you guys death. beat us. It was the pool of death. We, it was the pool we, of death. Three Three of the final four were from that pool. Wild absolutely wild yeah um the pool of death that was a super fun experience for us um that was it was huge because actually uh (laughs) that season was the first year i think they made people actually qualify for nationals if i remember correctly was the world cup six because five i think was open um and so we have our regionals and i remember we had like a rivalry with uh now what is utsa quidditch but then like before they were i think a club sport their roadrunner quidditch and that had a couple of, like, the early pieces that now are kind of, you know, staples everywhere else. Like, that had Craig Garrison. That had Luke Langlinet, I believe. Um, I don't think Taylor Tracy was quite there yet. Maybe a year later. I don't quite remember. But, um, yeah, basically there's a lot of players that, you know, now are part of Lone Star or have been part of, you know, Heat. Um, players that have been huge in that program. But um, I remember we had a rival with them. They are way more athletic than we are. Um, and I think it's at that point we had slightly better beaters. And then I remember at regionals, 
we beat them on the first day in pool play, and that was huge for us. It's a strange game. We're really happy about it. And the second day in bracket, I remember I just played, like, absolute trash. We played LSU, and that was back when LSU had their, like, good beating core, and they stomped us. And then we played Runner again, and they stomped us. And I think that basically cost us our bid. And I remember being feeling so bad about myself and thinking that my play, like, ruined our chances. And so I was like, man, I got to stop playing beater. I'm, like, too much of a burden on the field. So I switched to Chaser just for World Cup 6, to Chaser and Seeker. Um, and then we played you guys. And I I thought I had, I, I had a great tournament. It was fun. It was really fun being able to play teams that weren't, like, A&M and UT all the time. Uh, and that was – and at that point in time, I definitely do think the Southwest was, like, truly the deepest region. Um, and I think it showed in that both Loyola and Sam Houston ended up in the finals um, uh, of the D2, even. Um, and then, of course, had uh, Texas in the finals and Baylor in the final four as well. Um, and overall, yeah, it was a great experience for us. We took 16 people. Uh, our school pay, our school, our, our student government, who for some reason loved us, gave us money for flights and hotels for 16 people. So that's what we took. And it was a, it was a really great experience. And I very fondly remember that tournament. Yeah, that was a good time. I had a lot of fun. I, I wish we were in that finals. We, we ended up losing to the eventual champion in the semis uh, on an off-pitch snitch grab. Oh, the Sam final Houston. score was 50 to 10. That's rough, man. Uh, Heartbreaker. <laughs> and that was the exact moment I was like, all right, off-pitch snitching has to go. Man, what really sucks is, like, I look back on that, too. I mean, yeah, with off-pitch seeking especially. Uh, so we had, as I said, we had 16 spots. We had 17 people part of our program. So when we're making the cuts, and honestly, we probably could have figured out a way to pay for that 17th person. But I don't, th- I don't think we're interested in that Also, We're like, we're taking 16 people. And so we had a decision of taking this guy who had been part of the original program, like, the semester before I got there, and was supposed to be in charge, like, my – that sophomore year, but uh, instead, like, just kind of bailed. Uh, but he, like, kind of showed up every now and then. And come the end of the year, you know, we're going to Nationals, we're flying to Florida, we're going to Orlando. He just pops up out of nowhere and is like, I want to go, you know, I want to go to Nationals. And we're like, no, we <laughs> really haven't been around. And so we took this, uh, this girl, Fiona, who, oh, man, bless her heart, she was uh, so incredibly bad. Um, and, she, like, she had never played any sports in her entire life. Um, and like, but she had the work ethic of like a killer, man. She was awesome. Like every day in the drill, she would put 110% in and it like, she was just so, she's just so far removed from anything athletic that like she would not improve in any short semblance of time. But because of her work ethic, we're like, we're taking Fiona, but because we're also trying to win, we are like, we're struggling with like how to play or when to play her. And especially cause we almost all of our games, like we're snitch range. So we're all super close games in that pool for the most part. And even in that, D2 tournament, there was a ton of parody. Um, and so um, what happened is that we ended up just putting her in the box for, for the first five minutes. And then we basically, after I had talked to a bunch of the other school, like, like the LSU and some of the Texas people like who'd been to World Cup before, I was like, hey, if we just like stay on the field and don't go running after the snitch, like there's a pretty good chance like, we'll make it back and we can just play it there, right? And they were like, sure. And so we just had Fiona in the box and walking around the field after the box ended to see the snitch uh, and then instantly be like, hey, Tab, the snitch is here and sub out with me. That was our only job was just to be in the box. And I feel so bad relegating oh, her to that. And it sucks because that a lot of teams did that. Like like, like that was the, the, the thing that so many teams did was to have someone just take up the box time, which is like such a waste of a player and such an easy way to put a player who – 
like, could be valuable in other ways and just shove him there. So I, I, I'm really regretful for that. But I think it was actually in the Miami of Ohio game. I think it was when we were playing you guys. The the snitch had, uh, or, like, a... I like I I'm on the field chasing and I look over in the box and I'm like yo I like ask someone on the bench I'm like where's Fiona and they're like they're, she's chasing the snitch and I look and she's like slightly off pitch trying to chase a snitch and she's like so bless her heart she's so slow like the snitch is like walking away and she's like running as fast as she can and I'm freaking out I'm like we're about to lose so I'm like yelling at her to sub out oh man that was a uh, awful awful experience i hate off pitch seeking i hate how it incentivized teams to do that and i fiona for some reason you're listening to this i doubt you are i doubt you ever played quidditch again after that uh i'm so sorry i'm so incredibly sorry that's okay i i think everyone listening to this has won Uh, anyone who is in leadership in college has one person or another that they like they so regret how it went with that person you're like if i could just turn back time man uh, tons, tons, tons. So you, uh, were there any other highlights of the, the last couple of years at Loyola? Yeah, man. Before uh, you moved to the club scene? Our last year, uh, our last year there, um, it was when I wasn't a student anymore. Um, and so we're like, honestly a good, probably, man, I'm trying to think six players maybe on the Loyola team, the World Cup eight Loyola team weren't students. I mean, that was before they had their player, before they had their player eligibility for college students. So we had, like, myself, um, my beater partner, and, like, honestly, one of my best buds ever, Michael Gallaty, who now plays on Terminus as a chaser. Um, he he was also a non-student. We had CJ Jr. from Emerson, who was, uh, he had graduated from that World Cup 17 that made to the Final Four, came down and was, um, I think, doing, like, Teach for America or America Corps in New Orleans. So he was playing with us. Um, and so we had like a solid team. You know, we saw a team that had go- a really good in crew to freshmen. We recruited really hard that season. We made a deal with Res Life to where we could put a flyer for Quidditch on every single bed in the dorms, um, which I think helped uh, our recruitment a ton. Um, we got a ton of freshmen out. It was really exciting. Um, and then uh, what happened is that at Nationals, like, we just straight up choked. Um, I remember that like that team was solid. I mean, like that team beat a rebuilding AM. That team held a Baylor, a really good Baylor, uh, in snitch range. Um, like, like that was a solid Loyola team. We just, like, we just, for the few athletic pieces we had, we just didn't have quite enough strategy, and we were still slowballing super hard. I mean, just the previous season, and I'll, I'll, I'll say this till the day I die, but Loyola invented slowballing. Um, and, uh... It can be easily traced back to this, and that is at World Cup 7 Regionals, and it was like Tulsa, I think Tulsa, Oklahoma. Uh, we're playing A&M in pool play, and we had 12 people uh, for, for that Regionals. We had a really bad recruiting year, and I was like, hey, how about we just like, we have good beaters who are going to play most of the game, like me and Michael, and we have a really good seeker in Eric Jurgison. And I was like, let's just hold on to the ball and keep the score as low as possible, try to catch a stitch and win. Uh, because it just it suited our skill set. And so we started doing it, and Doug Whiston from KU came down to Tulsa and was the head ref for every one of Loyola's games. And he came up to me after, I think, our AM game, where it was pretty low scoring for how bad AM should have beat us. Um, but uh, he comes up, he's like, hey, man, like, what's y'all's strategy? And I told him. I was like, we have good beaters. So you're just trying to hold on the ball. And he's like, all right, cool. And then, what, 
two months later uh, in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. I'm watching Kansas play Texas A&M, and they're doing the exact same thing, but with actual athletes like Adam Heald. Uh, and I, I remember watching it being like, holy crap. I was like, these guys, I was like, they did it. They did slow balling, but like the right way, like with actual athletes that can do it well. Um, and then after that, you know, it blew up. So Kansas definitely did it best, and de- or Texas State did it best. Kansas did it like quote unquote first, but we were the Inklings, and I'll stand by that till the day I die. Uh, that was our strategy, and for that, I am so sorry to the Quidditch world. Uh, I, I am so sorry I, brought, I helped bring that to Quidditch, which ruined the sport for like four years, uh, and is still ruining the sport. But um, yeah, man, like the World Cup A team was solid, and then we go to nationals. Uh, we pl- win our first. I'm trying to think. Who we played first. I think we played. In, we played NAU. We beat them in snitch range. Then we ended up playing Lone Star. And then our third game of the day was against and then like up and coming like Mizzou team with like a young David Becker and then his kind of mentor Brett Smith who was really good and they man they took my lunch money they 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 ate me up and our team and like Josh Evesmeyer I don't know if you remember him little glasses kid from Mizzou dude was ripping shots from the outside the keeper zone at the top hoop against our zone and just yeah. tearing it apart. And I remember, like, and, like, and, like, we imploded. We were yelling at each other. Because, like, I remember I was stepping up to make these beats, like, outside the keeper zone. And they were taking these shots and scoring. And I remember being like, why aren't y'all blocking these shots? Like, and it was just, yeah, they tore apart our zone. Uh, and they, we thought that we were going to win that game. And it would honestly not be super hard. And they ended up crushing us. Um, and then we go into our fourth game. And it was against uh, a fairly young Warriors team. Um, and we ended up having a really close game with them. I think we were down 30-40 when Stitch came on. Uh, and then, yeah, it, it, I remember, I remember, uh, them catching the, like, I subbed out, someone else goes in, they, like, catch the snitch instantly, and I, like, start crying. Like, that was my last, like, meaningful game with Loyola, and we were really hoping to, our plan was to make bracket play. Make day two was our, our goal, um, and it just, like, we just kind of blew it with that implosion with Whip Mizzou, and then even though we rallied for that Warriors game, like, they were just a more complete team than we were at that point. Um, but that team, like, means a lot to me because, like, we put a lot of work in. And also, too, most of that season, because, as I said, half of us were non, non-students non at that point, we knew about Gumbo. Like, we had plans for Gumbo, like, pretty early on in that season, um, which was good in that, like, I don't know, it kind of let us know this is it, and so we kind of worked harder for that. At the same time, it also caused a little division uh, of the players who were like, yeah, stop, th- like, you know, I'm not going to go for Gumbo, but, like, stop talking about it, stop thinking about it right now, which is totally fair and something we probably could have done less is talk about it less. But we were definitely, I remember like me and Michael and CJ were like romanticizing like the idea in that Loyola season of like, oh, next season we're gonna have, everyone cares, you know, which is I think a big thing is that with club, for the most part at a competitive club team, like everyone that is there cares a lot. Whereas a college team is kind of you get what you get, especially for a small college team. A lot of it is a lot of the players just, aren't interested like aren't interested in being invested in Quidditch which happens and is fair and it's hard to create a program that everyone is invested in Quidditch when your school is so small and recruitment in general is really hard um and so uh that was tough but like it was the kind of necessary thing I think to happen um but yeah overall I really value my time at Loyola a lot and even though I mean I wish I could go back and change a million things about what I did and how I acted and how I played and just like uh Man, I a ton of regrets, but man, those were some really good times. So you move on to Gumbo after that, Gulf mm-hmm. Coast Gumbo. Gumbo spelled G U M B E A U X. You know it, baby. 
Uh, and how was your time with Gumbo? Uh, Gumbo was cool. Um, I liked Gumbo in that it really was, I think, my first taste of, like, we are trying to win games, right? Like, like we are, I mean, we're trying to win games with Loyola, especially that last season, but, like, this is, like, we have the talent to, like, actually win games. Um, I think it, I think we really struggled both seasons, chaser-wise. We just, like, we didn't have any, like, individual outstanding talent outside of Charlton Trammell, who came the second season of Gumbo, um, and... Drew Brekus kind of came into his own in the second season of Gumbo as well, and that that was why that second season of Gumbo was a way better team um, than the first season. But also, like, those two seasons of Gumbo uh, and, coincidentally, Curse uh, were, like, the worst seasons I think I've played of Quidditch. That and my season on Frost, I think, were the worst three seasons I've played of Quidditch ever. Um, uh, I think... Uh, I've, t- I've talked to people about this before. I think a lot of it was, like, a mental toughness thing, um, I think especially at beater and trying to play it at a high level, I think it's really hard to find that balance of being confident in yourself and not being shook by other beaters and like playing to accommodate them, but also not playing in a really over arrogant, overconfident style, which is something that I think I would, I feel like I would go on either side of that and I could, I could never get it just right. I would either be really overconfident and make really dumb plays. That was me like, overextending myself. Like there's so many clips I would watch of games where I'd have like I'd have like a great great set I'd be like like pressing like doing something really cool and then instantly just throw my bludger ray on something dumb and someone on the sideline would be like yeah Tad yeah Tad and then when I threw it away it'd be like oh Tad Tad and it's like those moments right those would happen way too often and that's something that I think there were a lot of beaters that are that were my talent level or even maybe even slightly better who were struggling with that same thing especially with the game meta starting to change to reflect beaters more like max Havlin and jackson johnson at that point who at that point were both starting to blow up and really kind of solidify their places in the meta chrisito as well and i think beaters like myself like kyle bullens um who i think didn't play much uh, if at all after a season with unc um, but like these big beaters, these like kind of turret beaters who were like throwing really hard and like, like making really good physical contact, like the Peevlers of the world as well, the Ryan Peevlers of the world. Um, I think, uh, I think that was starting to be phased out. So I think it was kind of both of those. It was the mental toughness and also the meta was changing and I wasn't changing. And so personally, uh, it was difficult too, uh, because I had all that going on. And then also I was the leader of this team, you know, I was one of the captains, I was one of the coaches. And so it was hard to work on myself and put a lot of time in myself when I was also trying to create better players and everyone else. Um, and so I ended up switching to Chaser um, that second season at Gumbo because kind of the same thing with that Loyola season where I played poorly. I was like, man, I'm such a detriment to this team at Beater, especially when that Gumbo team the second year had, in my opinion, still one of the best Beater core of all time. Um, I mean, that was Cody LeBeau, Jason Wynn, Josh Mansfield – uh, Sarah Neeling, Melissa White, and Brittany Laurent. Like, that's that's money. That's stacked. Um, Brittany Laurent is one of the most underrated players of all time, and she's probably one of the, if not the best beater, one of the best beaters to ever come out of Louisiana. Um, and she had a really short career, but she came from, like, USM. Best player to ever play at USM by far at Southern Miss. Um, yeah, she's a killer. Uh, so that team was, was good, and it was really good for me learning how to manage a lot of egos, a ton of egos. Um, I mean, myself included, obviously. Um, and a lot of those old good LSU players came, you know, with a lot of uh, a lot of ego as well, and a lot of expectation for doing well. Um, so that was really difficult 
to manage. And as I said before, I have a ton of regrets, you know, on how I talk to people and how I handled things and how I was as a leader. Um, and I think about that, you know, all the time. But overall, like that team was was really great, and there was a lot of community behind it, especially our second season um, when we really had really strong bonds too with other teams like Texas State. Um, that that team was was in my opinion really special, and I think uh, I think if we had been a little more uh, diligent and kind of expecting to do well at nationals. I think we probably could have gone a little bit further, but then we lost to a really good RPI team um, when Mario Nasa just completely dismantled our beater core, uh, like single-handedly. And as Josh Mansfield says, Mario is the worst beater to play the first time. Like he he just like the the first time Mario like the first time you play Mario, you you will almost always struggle against him, um, which is something uh, that's. Yeah, like a huge credit to him. And there's also that Teddy Costa, Sam Nielsen, um, Emily, I think, Frolio, like, they killed us. Yeah, they – great team. Um, like, they lost to Calvary after that, which we definitely probably would have, too. We'd lost to them multiple times that season. But that season, like, we had a snitch game, snitch range game with Lone Star. We were beating – I mean, like, we played snitch range games with Texas. Like, like we were a good team. Um, we just – we definitely could have had a little more discipline and been a little bit better um, – and then, as I said, I could have run it better as well. Um, we definitely we blew a lead. We blew a forty-up lead to DC QC and lost the Cinch Range game. We lost an overtime game to Lost Boys that we also should have won. Like, I think we we're up 30, 40 at one point. Like once again, just a lot of bad game management. A lot of lessons I learned from that year specifically. Sure, but overall, yeah, a really special team in my heart. The branding was great. I feel like we're the people's. Like, 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 people loved gumbo. People loved hearing our chant, which was the soup and rice chant. And we, which I think won best chant, actually, our second year at Nationals, it won best chant. And it was, uh, we'd gather in a circle, and we would uh, all rock back and forth and say soup and rice, soup and rice, and get louder and louder. And then someone would get in the middle and go, uh, were we born to fish? And everyone yelled no, and they go, were we born to born to trap? And everyone goes no. And he goes, "What are we born to do?" And it was born to hunt. Um, and we got that because uh, early on in the season, before we had jerseys, we're like, "Hey, let's all show up in green uh, for like a like breakfast taco, the unofficial tournament in the Southwest." And uh, three different players from three different parts of like one was in Texas, one in Baton Rouge, one in New Orleans, had all gone to Walmart to buy a green shirt and all got the same like born to hunt camo real tree shirt on accident, not on purpose, just one they, <laughs> they got. And it was so funny and it said born to hunt on it. And like since then, like that, it like that just became our bit. It was so funny to us. Uh, and yeah, and it was a fun cheer and people loved it and People loved the, uh, the the branding of, like, Who's Your Craw Daddy was one. Uh, and then, like, Go Gumbo, the G-A-U-X, um, and all that good stuff. So, um, honestly, really fun team. I like a lot of those people. I hold some of those people in the highest regard as, as players and as friends. Um, yeah, big love playing with Gumbo for the most part. And you already alluded to it. The uh, season after Gumbo was, uh, you said, a, a poor season of you playing with TC Frost. That was a poor season in a lot of ways, man. I mean, I've I've talked about it a little bit, I think, on other podcasts and probably just you know with people like here and there. But yeah, like I I went in with just like the wrong attitude. I mean, as I said, I was still playing this like weird, overconfident, like braggadocio way, and still thought I was hot shit, especially coming from there coming up here to a TCQC team that had at that point like famously underperformed I mean that was their bit right it was that Frost was so good and was underperforming and they were losing to teams that were just not even nearly as athletic as they were 
And so I was excited. I was definitely jumping at the opportunity to coach people who I think wanted to be coached. Um, that being said, uh, I look back at like how I kind of went in. And I definitely went in with this like, all right, I'm going to fix Frost attitude, uh, which is not the attitude that anyone wants someone coming to their team to have, you know? Um, that being said, even though I went about it in a really poor way, myself and then eventually Digman joining at the semester as well um, later that year, uh, I think we brought a lot of kind of new thoughts to the team about their kind of journey towards competitiveness. And um, it was bad in that, as I said before, like, like I was very, uh, uh, I was very overconfident. I was very, like, I would talk down to people and, like, kind of give them, like, unsolicited coaching notes. And I was definitely just, like, not a good guy about it. Uh, I do love those people a ton, though. Like, those Frost people are some of the nicest, like, best humans I've, like, ever met. They're so fun. They party very hard. Uh, I, I love spending time with the Frost guys. And their branding is, like, literally the best that Quidditch has ever seen, in my opinion. Uh, and I'm so mad I quit the team before I got those cool tanks their second year. Those, like, Timberwolves <laughs> tanks. Oh, they're so cool. Uh, shout out to them for that. But, yeah, and then it really blew up where basically I, I – I was at ends with the leadership of Frost, and so was Diggy, but I was just way more adamant about it because I said I kind of just didn't know my place on this team where Diggy was way more respectful. Um, but, yeah, I came in and I was like, look, man, like, I'm trying to win. Like, that's my goal now is trying to win. I spent two years on Gumbo trying to do that, and I really feel like we have an opportunity here to do well, especially in that season I feel like it was a down year for a lot of teams um, as far as, like, recruitment went as far as, like, stronger rosters went. So I was like, this is a time for Frost to really, like, bump up, you know, like, really big time for TCQC. And, uh, and so I was really upset when I just felt like we weren't, pr like, properly doing, like, game management right, um, which, again, was a lesson I learned really hard the first year and second year in Gumbo was, like, game management and, like, how to, like, win these games when you're down 40. Um, and so that's something that I kind of kept in the back of my head a lot. And so come Nationals, we're losing to Long Beach, uh, a team we'd beat earlier that season, Edwards versus Villains, we're down like 30, down 40, like really early on. And we'd gone through our first two lines, and I'm like, all right, let's get our first line back out there, let's go. And instead we put in like our third and fourth line, just playing everyone evenly, which was the biggest thing I was at odds with at the time, which sucks because, as I said before, like a lot of those players, after hearing me eventually during this game, I, I quit the team after this game. After I was so irritated and so mad that we didn't do the best way possible to win this game, that I quit, uh, and I was super angry, and then I came back, and I apologized, and I'm so and I was like, I'm sorry, and I, and I was, I felt so bad, and I really was taken, really taken aback by, like, how I had let my competitiveness, uh, kind of just, like, take over me in such a negative and gross way, and then, um, uh, they were like, especially, like, Obi was like, hey, man, like, I get it, and a lot of players, a lot of players separately came up to me, were like, hey, man, I get it, a lot of them were like, I didn't like the way that you, you know, what went about it, but, like, I get what you're saying. Especially a lot of the more, uh, like, players who had, like, been playing sports, played collegiate sports, like, a lot of them are real competitors. And so a lot of them were like, I get what you're saying, I get that too. Like, man, I remember Zane Kaiser, like, Zane Kaiser, who was a great teammate, super positive guy, like, usually the, like, third string beater uh, on TCQC. I remember, like, talking to him in the bathroom that night, and he was just like, man, like, if it means me playing less time, I don't care. Like, this team just deserves to win. And I was like, that attitude is something that I think, even though I did it the wrong way, uh, I think I and Diggy helped kind of bring to the team. And since then, I think they have really had a glow up. I mean, like, after we left and did Boom Train, they became our biggest rivals. And we have since range games with them, you know, constantly. Uh, and they're constantly improving. And, like, I've seen players that, you know, like, 
Nicole Nelson that I started playing with when I was there, and that was her first year. I think even playing Quidditch because she didn't make like the Minnesota team, and then now she is like a big part of their beating core. Uh, and her and Cody Narvison are like a actual unit, you know. And so like it's so cool and refreshing to see that. And I'm like so regretful that these people that meant so much to me and were so nice to me, and that like I just I treated them so poorly because I just wanted to win. You know what I mean? So I I think about that a lot. And as far as like especially on my attitude towards Quidditch now, um, and especially like that competitiveness and that drive that I feel like I innately naturally have. It's uh, it's tough. It's it, it's been a tough learning experience to learn how to like be competitive while still be you know encouraging um, and being a good teammate um, and being a good friend. And so like I, I I think about the TCQC season a lot, and I cringe hard when I think about just how bad I treated a lot of people on that team. Um, but overall, man, that's like such great people, and like as long as they keep doing their thing, like I I feel like the the sky is the limit, but for that team. Because they just have so much athletic talent. Like, they, they could do anything they wanted. Yeah, I totally agree. And then after leaving TCQC, that uh, brings us up to pretty much present day with Boom Train. Yeah, uh, I did a season and then a half, you know, before COVID with Boom Train. Uh, yeah, basically it was me. I'd been in Chicago for a year at that point. was playing in Minnesota. Um, and I was like, and I had, you know, I had that thing with Frost. And, uh, and, but even though we're fine, you know, we're fine now, I'm still friends with like all those guys. It was still like, man, I, like, I need to, to be on a team where like everyone is on the same page. Like it, it, it became at that point, like a necessity for me to play Quidditch because I just realized that like, it just brings up the bad part in me when I see people that like aren't putting it in. And that's coming from someone who like, as I said, for a long time, couldn't devote a lot of time on his own to Quidditch. I mean, I'm working like 60 to 80 hours a week. Don't have a lot of time to work out. Don't have a lot of time to watch film. Not nearly as much as I did when you know I was in college, but um, but man, uh, so playing Boom Train, it was literally me, Diggy, Jeff Sywick, Jeremy Hoffman, and Alyssa Marasa. We're all like, hey, we all want to play Quidditch. We have a lot of these graduates now. Let's start a team. And Chicago United was at first pretty uh, heated because they at that point had like barely two lines worth of players. Even though I said there's gonna be a large amount of players coming up the next season. Um, and so it was kind of a hard sell to tell them in Bruce City why we wanted to start another team out of Milwaukee and Chicago. But it really came down to the point of, I firmly believe, and I've talked about this on forums and stuff before, that every, especially in the club, se- club setting, there should be an opportunity to play Quidditch for every person, whether they want to play recreationally and casually or want to play at the highest competitive level. And to me, it felt unfair for me, Diggy, Hoffman, Sywick, and Alyssa to be like, hey, we have these other, uh, you know, players who want to play competitively, and we're all going to join United and make it a competitive team. And then those players that maybe wouldn't be as competitive or don't want to be as competitive now wouldn't be able to play Quidditch. Um, and so we really didn't want to do that. And so once we explained that, I think they were way more understanding of the issue. Um, but um, I think too, I think a lot of players that come from smaller programs want to be competitive and win, but I think a lot of them don't realize exactly what it takes, if that makes sense. Um, I think a lot of them don't realize that a lot of the players on the high-level teams came out from teams that had, like, workout regimens, that were doing, like, three, four-week practices, that were, like, doing film studies, and that's stuff that, like, I don't expect people to do that unless they're playing out of the high-competitive level. And so when we started Boom Train, there was a little kickback, as I said at first, from United and from Bruce City, and eventually, um, I think... I, th- I think after Boom Train played everyone, 
uh, and like kind of prove that like yeah we're here we're doing this like this is going to be a team that wants to compete for a national championship every year um, I think people were like all right cool now there's like a place for everyone to play Quidditch like if you want to play really competitive you play Boom Train and if you want to learn uh, learn a lot um, play with people who some are very competitive and very talented players I mean heck Scott Rain's an extremely talented chaser and he's been leading up United for several seasons now same with Danny um, as well at Danny Koob. Yakub, I think I say his last name. I've never actually said it. Uh, but yeah, like Danny. That's how you say Is it. Is it cool? Yeah, awesome. Love you, Danny. Shout out to my boy. Uh, yeah, so Danny and Scott are both like really talented players. And so like they've been literally building up that team for a while. Um, and so they're definitely making their mark as becoming like a mid tier, like competitive team. And who knows, like will they'll like will they'll take that, you know, as far as their team culture goes. But it's just really nice to have different opportunities. Uh, because like something I realized with Gumbo was that we tried to recruit like, from the city. I mean, we're never huge on numbers with Gumbo. We pull a lot of people from Texas, like 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 people that didn't want to play Lone Star Cav would play for us. Um, and uh, uh, it was one thing when we'd have new like brand new people to Quidditch, like from the community, show up to practice, and we're like doing like pretty you know you know like you know like the high level like Quidditch game meta stuff. And it's just like it's so hard to just jump into that and like on a competitive setting. Um, especially if those people like aren't like naturally really athletically minded and like have that natural like athletic intuition, so it can be difficult and it's hard. It's hard to recruit people and keep them like that, and it's hard to you know for those players to try to fit in. So I think having opportunities for both of those and then being able to play maybe on a on a team like United for a season, two seasons, grow a lot as a player, and then be like, man, I really want to play this competitively. I really want to invest a lot more time into this. Now I can pl- try you know try out like for Boom Train. Um, or even indie in the summer, you know, like things like that. So I think I think we just really need to be opening up a lot of uh, club teams to just like start new teams and have them casual and have them competitive and whatnot. But um, as far as boom train goes, it's been an absolute like the most perfect Quidditch experience I could think of. Um, like man, Diggy has done such a phenomenal job of establishing just such a positive culture there. And last year on boom train, like 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 our actual first season on boom train. Um, was a was the first time I felt like I was learning uh, since probably my last season at Loyola, if not even sooner. Like I learned so much from playing with Matt Brown and Jeremy and see how they played. Also, to that indie season before playing with those two and playing with Tyler Walker and Aaron Moreno um, and Sam McNew, like a lot of talent there, and just like learning how disciplined they're beating. Uh, their beating system was um, really like kind of inspired me to start learning that and being a better teammate on that end and also too like not being uh, you know what in my eyes like the beater number one right or being like a, a huge piece like being a part of a team I think was something I hadn't been in a while and so that was a, a really nice thing to be and so I was able to work on myself a lot and I had a lot of growth through the end of the season and of course ended poorly with that shutout and the semis which Man, it's one of the darkest Quidditch moments in my life. But like this past season, I mean, I, I, I really felt like I'd grown a lot, and I was, I felt like I'd played better this past this past half season than I've played probably in the past like three or four years, uh, which I'm really bummed about COVID. But like, it's just a testament to like how great of a system Diggy and like Matt Brown um, and Alyssa have put together um, on Boom Train, and like they're just so good at fostering growth. Uh, and there's a lot of communication, and there's a lot of um, a lot of just individual athletic and mental Quidditch development going on on Boom Train. 
Um, and Diggy really just loves getting the best out of people and really just maximizing their abilities um, in the roles that we give them. And so, like, yeah, I'm, I'm really thankful like, for the opportunities there. And, like, I, I, I couldn't ask for, I think, a better a better culture to play in than Boom Train. That is a ringing endorsement. And it's it, you are now, like, the third person being on this podcast to talk about this because we had – I had Jeanette on very early on in this podcast who talked about how much she learned playing on the team and then had Diggy on himself to talk about his philosophy and everything – and uh, I encourage uh, listeners to go back and listen to those episodes, especially the one with uh, Nathan Digman, because that I think the episode is titled like uh, a loss in the final four is is like an epic failure or something like that. And, and like, but you need to listen to him talk about it and how he viewed that and everything. And uh, I like that's it's interesting to continue to hear different perspectives that all point to the same thing about how the culture and attitude of this team has created such a fostering environment for these players to thrive. Yeah, and it's, uh, I don't know, it's like, to me, it's it's so kind of ubiquitous because it's something that I see in, like, everything I do, right? So, like, with Quidditch, is like, this competitive endeavor and seeing this, like, in my opinion, like, the best... It may not be in the best, depending on the people that are part of the program, right? But I think is like the general best way to like create this winning culture. Um, when you look at uh, like working in a kitchen, especially working in like for me like high end kitchen that work for like a celebrity chef, there's high expectations there. Um, basically, as close to fine dining as you can get without being fine dining. And, like, it's competitive. I mean, especially at, like, her flagship restaurant, you have people who are there It's like, to learn from her and are competitive and want to be, like, the best line cooks and the best chefs they can. And it's so interesting to see people who are, like, uh, you know, like, that. it's almost like toxic sports culture in the kitchen, right? It's, like, it exists. And it's wild to see because I'm, like, whoa, this is crazy. But then in, like, one of the other restaurants, you know, like, there'll be, like I said, this really, like, communal, like, we're all getting better together culture, and it really depends on, like, the chef de cuisine and the sous chefs and how they're kind of enforcing this and how they're encouraging growth while still, you know, having people competitive, which I think is the biggest thing, because I think when people are being competitive, it's easy to get defensive and to want to feel confident and overconfident, and I think it's hard to feel confident and to take feedback and criticism. And I think that's something a lot of Quidditch, a lot of people who want to be competitive, I think don't have that right mindset. Um, I definitely didn't have it until honestly very recently where I could be competitive and be confident, but still take feedback from people. Um, even if I, you know, take it in my head or not, I can still take it and like not be like defensive or upset about it. Same thing goes in the kitchen when someone's telling me how to do a dish better or how to do it faster um, or like what ways they do. Um, and also the same thing goes in comedy. I mean, the same thing goes with like doing stand up and doing improv. Um, seeing people around the city, as I said, there's this comp- like there's this competitive aspect of everyone trying to you know make it right, everyone trying to get big, um, and some people uh, just like will not work with anyone. You know what I mean? Like they don't ask anyone for opinions; they just do it by themselves, which can work and is fine and can be good in the same way that you know Kobe could do it, right? Then like, but at the end of the day, uh, at the end of the day, it comes down to like I think you are most likely to find success most often when you are confident in what you do know, but taking feedback and learning to even better that. Um, and so like, yeah, it's been, it's, it's been a huge, just like growth thing for me as a person that I think has also just found itself kind of warming its way into the things I do, which are like Quidditch comedy and cooking. Um, so it's like, I don't know. It's a, it all kind of makes sense in the same pot to me. 
It all comes back to cooking. It all comes, it all back, comes back to back cooking, to baby. The, <laughs> it all comes back to the gumbo. <laughs> All right, we wow, that was a a long Quidditch journey. We are forty seven minutes into this podcast. <laughs> That's all right. We can we can move forward because the 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 big thing here that I wanted to talk about is um, you posted recently. So you've been the coach of uh, Columbia College in Chicago for a, a year, a season, or so? just a season. Yep, actually, just a, a, season. a, a half season, honestly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but you you posted something recently that I found absolutely fascinating in that Columbia is going to offer a Quidditch scholarship. They sure are. It is so exciting. Please tell me about this. Yeah, so um, it basically came up uh, through I mean, all these conversations, uh, you know, like from these people of color roundtables that, like, have just been so enlightening. And, like, as I said before, I mean, I mentioned it earlier about how, like, I've looked back at how I, you know, treated teammates and how I was a coach and a leader and how how uh, uh, how poorly I did it in so many ways. I mean, whether that was giving, um, you know, female or, like, non-binary... Uh, I, gee, I don't think we had any non-binary players. But, yeah, like, female players at Loyola, just not giving them, like, the opportunities that, you know, we gave men on the field. Like, things like that. But also just going back to, for me, uh, looking back at, like, just stuff that... Uh, not only that I did, but, like, looking at stuff the teammates did. Uh, luckily, Loyola had one of the most diverse Quidditch teams to this day that I've ever seen. Um, it re- I think it helps that, you know, our school um, is a very large percentage of, like people of color. I want to say it's like at least in the 40-50%, which is several percents more than a lot of other schools. And we're also in, located in a city that also has a large black population as well um, and a large Vietnamese population. Um, and so you get a lot of people of color at Loyola, um, especially from those two backgrounds. And so uh, I think I got lucky in that I really had a lot of positive experiences learning, um, whereas a lot of people, I think, got through college uh, really tokenizing a lot of their teammates um, and really, you know, saying things like, oh, you're really athletic, right? And, like, not giving any more lead and sort of like, oh, well, you're athletic, but you're not, like, smart enough to ball carry. Like, like I don't think you understand the game well enough. Like, stuff like that. Um, and so, it, for me, it was a huge learning experience. Um, and, I, man, I remember... This, this, I, I bring this up because I remember just like it offhand was weird when it happened. Looking back, it just makes me cringe. I remember one day we went to a tournament in Texas and a friend of mine from another team comes up and he, it was like our first tournament of the year, I think. And he's like, Hey man, uh, you, uh, the guy's looking pretty good out there. And I was like, Oh, thanks. He goes, yeah, man, you got a uh, three black guys on the team. That's like totally unfair. And, and I remember being like, oh I remember like, also I was confused because only one of them was actually a good player. <laughs> and so I was just like, <laughs> I was like, uh, I was like, that's, I was like, okay, that's weird. Like in my head, I was like, you're just assuming they're like going to be really good at Quidditch because they're black. When I just said two of them like weren't athletic, they weren't good. <laughs> they were just black. So I thought that was really weird. That was like one of the first times I think I remember like kind of being like, that's not cool. Like that's a bad thing. And then. Also, too, um, something we had to be really wary of is driving to Texas tournaments like A and M um, and it at UT. We would have to drive through uh, a part of Texas that is like kind of infamous uh, for like racism, like Jasper, Texas, um, which might ring a bell for people listening. Um, and like Vider, Texas, like some of like the like seats of like the Klan um, in Texas, and it's like near where my dad lives and where a lot of that side of the family lives. And so I knew kind of firsthand how bad and toxic that part of Texas could be. And it's kind of right in between us and 
uh, like Central Texas. And so every time we'd drive, it'd be like, you know, we'd leave after classes at like 4 p.m. And then we'd have a van full of, you know, students of color uh, and like a couple of white kids who would be like at 10 p.m. stopping in like, or like driving through like Orange, Texas or Vider, Texas around these areas. And I was always like, man, guys, we can't stop. Like we straight up, we can't stop and get gas. And sure, it probably would have been fine, but like in my head, all I could think of is like all we need is like one drunk dude in a pickup truck to like say something like to one of our teammates that could have like a profound effect on the rest of their life. And and that's something that's like always just kind of stayed with me. Um, and so especially after hearing, as I said, um, like all these players talk about their experiences, it just like really just got me thinking of like what can we do especially at these schools that are like majority white and have very white Quidditch teams. Like what can we do to have basically just any players that aren't white on the team? And uh, a lot of it has been talked about. It's just like, you know, treating them with proper respect, um, you know, like not tokenizing them as well as um, just like giving them the same opportunities and encouraging. It's not even giving the same opportunities, it's encouraging the same opportunities, you know, and like really making sure that, you know, if players of colors want to be ball carriers, they're getting the same opportunities as, you know, their white male counterparts. And the same thing goes with honestly just getting uh, people of color out to like black uh, and indigenous other players of colors out to actual practices and playing and feeling like they're being welcomed as part of the team um, and kind of not being like objectified for, you know, their athleticism, if that is a thing. Um, and so a big part of it came from that. And then also too, like just as part of like it's a recruitment tool at the end of the day as well. So it really serves two functions. Um, it's just one, just building up recruitment at the school and two, um, I thought of the idea and on the, like, I thought it was going to be a wash, honestly. I thought there'd be too much red tape. It'd be really difficult. I remember messaging Hank Doogie and I was like, Hey man, is there like anything with like, like Warner brothers that like I couldn't do this with? And he was like, Nope, it's fine. You're not making money off it. So whatever. And I was like, all right, cool. And then I hit up, uh, the advisor for the Columbia program after I talked to the, like the captains were like, yeah, that'd be awesome if we could do that. And I talked to the advisor. She was very for it. Um, a wonderful woman named Monique uh, May, uh, who comes out to regionals as the advisor and everything. It's like would fly out. She's awesome. Um, she like directed me to the director of development um, and then uh, the senior director, I think, of alumni uh, donations. And they were super enthusiastic. They Apparently the dean of the college loves Quidditch. So they were like really excited like to jump on that. Um, and yeah, they were super helpful. They are like really, really quick um, about like basically having meetings with me. We had several meetings where we discussed what options for creating the scholarship would be best because there's like small lump sum options where we basically just have a bank account on campus. We put money in and it goes out. But um, we chose to do the kind of bigger, uh, kind of go bigger, go home. And that's uh, basically create a Quidditch endowment, um, which at uh, at Columbia for endowments to be created, they need uh, $25,000 um, to basically be a fully created endowment. And so uh, our game plan uh, is to try to raise $10,000 uh, by the end of December, because usually these endowments start with uh, a, a big lump sum like donation from like a family, you know, like for like a memorial scholarship or something. That's usually around 10, like to 15,000 or even the whole sum of the endowment. But since we're all Quidditch players and no one's got that kind of money, I was like, I think we can crowdfund at least $10,000 from the Quidditch community for the first ever Quidditch scholarship, especially for one that I think will mean so much to so many people. And I think we'll have such a profound impact kind of on the future of of, of, of how we have, uh, you know, black players, indigenous players, other players of colors in the sport. Um, and so our goal is to get 10000 by the end of the year um, and then basically, quote unquote, like donate that to the school 
and that's when they'll officially start uh, basically a like a actual donation page on the school website, and that's when they'll start actually pushing it towards their like actual alumni that have all the big bucks. So I think once we reach that ten thousand threshold and it starts getting written about more in the actual like Columbia system, alumni are starting to get wind of it. Um, I think we'll reach that twenty five thousand, which is the end goal uh, by at the very least like the end or like the middle of next summer. Um, and so our goal is to be fully fundraised by sometime next summer. Um, and as I said, 10,000 like by December is kind of our two uh, main forms for now. But overall, really excited about it. Um, can't thank uh, like Nico Banks and Riley Spendley enough for like being a part of this. Um, as well as like t- like Tessa DeHart, who's a part of the Quidditch team as well as, and, and as well as the Student Athletic Association president. Uh, she's been super helpful in all of this and like you know and like recommending to the right people. Um, so yeah, I mean, like that's a scholarship. We're super stoked about it. Um, and if you're listening, please donate, tell your friends, uh, we need that money for these kids. <laughs> we will leave a link in the description of this, uh, podcast so people can go donate. Uh, it is, it, this is super cool to hear about. And this is not something I would ever like, this just seems like such like a, like, you know, when we when we ruminate, you know, when people are like, oh, where do you see Quidditch in 25 years? And people are like, we're in the Olympics. We're an NCAA <laughs> sport, you know, like that seems like one of those like like pipe dream goals. Like, you know, one is seriously considering it, but you are out here doing the legwork and getting it done. And that is amazing to me. Yeah. I mean, thanks, man. Like I said, it was a. Uh... It was definitely a team effort. I mean, like, the Quidditch team has been really big in this, and, I mean, I really want to thank the Columbia administration for really just, like, really doing that work for us on the front, because it's so easy, you know, for someone in that office, like, to be like, this is dumb, I'm not going to spend time on this, I'm not going to send an email back. So, like, I think that's a huge thing, is just having an administration that, like, wants to be involved. But, like, we're super excited, and as far as the details go, um, at the very base, it's going to be a $500 a semester um, academic scholarship just to help offset the cost a cost of like tuition or room and board or whatever have you um, and then uh, Columbia is in the next couple of years um, like as now like I'm the coach there uh, trying to be like overall a more competitive program and kind of gear their season towards being more competitive uh, so we're gonna tra- be traveling a lot more um, hopefully out of region um, and probably just doing more things that might require more money. So eventually, um, depending on how, like Columbia is pretty good at funding Quidditch already, um, kind of like Loyola was for our school as well. Um, but uh, in case there are any other costs that come up, we might also add like a five hundred dollar a year stipend as well for various costs for like travel, for flights, or gas, or what have it, or like or what have you to kind of bolster that. Um, but it's going to be given to uh, basically a player of color uh, at the end of their uh, first semester. Um, so the fall semester, all the new recruits will come in uh, and play, and uh, and we're really going to just try to look for leadership qualities uh, exhibited not only through that semester and like coachability, obviously. Like we really want people that, as I said before, are really competitive, but like still very open to coaching and feedback. Um, and like really just have the markings of being a good leader in the future because I mean something else going forward um, especially important to our players uh, Riley and and Nico um, our captains like we just really want to make sure that we're putting um, marginalized people in like positions of power as as often as we can I mean it's not gonna like we're only gonna elect black people as the president of the of the club or captain of the club but like anything that we can do to have you know black players feel like they have the same opportunities to run for that position um, and you know not be marked down because of their skin color or a player because of their gender i think that'd be huge um and so we're really excited about that and we're really hoping that this pays off dividends in the next couple of years 
Yeah, and not only is it helping those players specifically, but I think it's kind of like it's really getting at the point that we've kind of been like talking around the past year or so in Quidditch about like how we are getting people to commit to Quidditch and keep it to be like a growing healthy sport about getting people engaged in the community, getting people because if you I I, I can only imagine if if I'm a college student I'm like getting excited about Quidditch. I'm invested. And here I go. I get some kind of scholarship for it because I've gotten invested. And like, this is like, I am so much more willing to be engaged with the community, to be like learning and talking to people, to just do everything in Quidditch because like they're giving me money. This, you know, it's, it's making me want to be more involved. And I think that not only is it good for that person in general, but I think it's good for the health of the community as a whole, and that's very exciting that you get to make that happen. Yeah, man. As I said, it's uh, it's all all part of the teamwork that made it all happen. I just randomly had the idea one day and asked asked some people about it. So um, yeah, we're really excited about it. As I said, we're really hoping that we can reach those goals, um, and really hoping that you know the player that, that receives it next season. Um, like will become a huge like facet of our program and then those players that do it will be like really big leaders in the program for years to come maybe i'll, I'll bring homes at home back in the future so i can talk to that player specifically and, and talk to them <laughs> how it affected them i i honestly i would be incredibly intrigued to hear Same. like how that changed like how they thought about quidditch how they interacted with quidditch that would be fantastic i've been trying to think about it man i've been like i've been like because like especially creating this i'm like all right like how would this player feel about getting this and like I think I think it, I think it's gonna be very really cool for that player, but I think it's also gonna be like kind of scary. You know what I mean? Because like now you're like you're a scholar, you're like a scholarship Quidditch player. Like that's gonna be I think some expectation. But overall, like as I said, I'm really excited, and I I really do think that any player that we choose to give the scholarship to will 100% arise to the occasion. So I'm 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 super stoked for it. Um, I think it's gonna be awesome. I'm really I'm really hoping this is a precedent for other schools and other places to start it. Um, yeah, super stoked. All right, we'll look forward to seeing all that. For right now, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll answer your mailbag questions. And we are back. Matt and Tad here to answer your mailbag questions, starting off with Jeff Sywick. Tad, you've been vocal about snitching and the changes we need. Mm -hmm. Uh, Do you feel the new system is enough change? What more would you like to see USQ do to improve snitch quality? Ah, oh, man, this is a very loaded question. Uh, yeah, so I was part of this snitch development team for a while, um, and like, admittedly, didn't put a ton of work in. But a part of it was just because like that that team in general was pretty dysfunctional for a while. It was like barely existed. Uh, Schneiders had so much more on his plate. I mean, he was doing membership stuff. So like, snitch development team, I think was just like it was just kind of lost for a while, uh, which I found really frustrating. I am exciting that they're finally introducing uh, the tiered certification uh, to snitching because I do think that the strongest snitching has ever been in the country was back when we had the bronze, silver, gold rank snitching. Um, I also think that you had more people back then doing the legwork to actually do the like snitch camps they used to have. Mike's Park would put them on in UT. I remember Kyle Carpenter, who was a big, a big snitch name back in the day. He did that big Lost Boys of Bowling Green game and kind of got Quidditch famous off of that game. Um, it was a really good snitch and honestly taught me just about everything I know about snitching. Uh, and he's like half my size. So, um, yeah. So like, 
Uh, I really like they they introduced a tier system. Um, don't like that uh, that you can snitch games without being field tested as an official snitch because tier five you don't have to be field tested. You only you don't have to get field tested to go up. That sucks. Um, I also understand why it's so hard to get you know the people to do it. Like it's such a hard system to kind of put in place. So hopefully in the future, I think once there's kind of more proctors and there's more of a system. Um, in place that'll kind of change and so everyone has to get field tested kind of when they have the resources for it um, I think it's a look in the right direction um, I think we need to just be standardizing it as much as we can like we do ref uh, like like the ref test and the ref tier system um, and then two like I know it's hard and I know it would just increase the cost of Quidditch for tournament directors and for teams but like we gotta be paying snitches more um, it's just it's such a difficult burden especially now secret like we're at a crossroads right now where something I've noticed in the past couple of years is that seekers can basically get away with a lot. Like, seeker calls, like, like uh, snitch refing is very, very, very bad. Like, insanely bad. Um, as far as how the rulebook is written, like, man, I, I see seekers regularly charging the snitch and it hardly ever gets called. I, it, it, I see it called at worst, like, once a tournament. Like, sorry, at most, like, once a tournament. And it should be getting called almost like several times a game uh for a lot of seekers uh and, and i mean a lot and it's because seekers a lot of times will do something and then they catch a snitch and they get it and they're like oh that works and that snitch rep didn't tell them that it was actually illegal and so you'll see players going in you know grabbing snitches on the hip and going around and grabbing or just straight up bulldozing snitches and trying to catch it or like completely jumping into snitches like tackling them launching themselves trying to grab it and stuff that like Nine times out of ten, just because of how they do it, is inherently illegal, but isn't being called by snitch refs. And so the players keep doing it, and snitches kind of have to adapt, because a lot of snitches also don't know the rules well enough to know that that's illegal. Um, and so it sucks, because you get this kind of just self-propagating, uh, this like self-fulfilling, self-fulfilling uh, prophecy of like, oh, well, you know, bad snitches and bad seekers, and they just get worse and become more illegal. And so I think it sucks, because I think you're also, I think we can rely less on really clean catches to win games. I feel like most really close games now are decided on, like, one or two catches called off bad and the last one's good, but, like, was it actually good compared to the first two? Like, so many times I've seen snitches call off, like, three catches, and then the fourth one is also bad, but just because they've already called off three, they feel like they have to, you know what I mean? Like, players so many times will pressure snitches to just call one good because, like, everyone thinks that if a snitch is calling off bad catches, they're being prideful or they don't want to get caught. And a lot of times it's not the case. A lot of times Seekers are just playing hella illegal. <laughs> and, like, and it sucks. And, like, I, I feel bad when I snitch, and I'll have college players who are fairly newer or, like, maybe really just only, like only you know uh play at like the certain level and they'll come and just like try to bulldoze me and i'll call them on a charge and they'll get frustrated and get angry and i'm like look man it's not my fault that you haven't learned the rules that no one's ever enforced them and so and it sucks because for the good player for like for the good snitches that do know the rules and have been around doing it a long time and know what a charge feels like when you're being charged or when someone uh impedes your movement um, I think it sucks for those players because I think they're kind of looked at as like almost like prudes, right? Of like, just let the catch happen, right? Uh, at some point. And so I think that as a culture, as a sport, like as a Quidditch culture, we need to get so much better about one, how we treat snitches. Um, and that includes like gameplay, uh, like tournament directors and like how they're playing snitches in games and how they're using snitches and when they're using snitches from certain teams. Um, and then two, I think it takes one, a lot of self-reflection from snitches to realize, hey man, like, am I, one, am I just worrying about my time, 
which is something snitches should never do. Um, in my opinion, if you snitch a 45-minute game, but you get caught with your back turned, that's a fail. Like, if I, like, like, but back when I was snitch proctoring, I would fail you for that. It doesn't matter how good, how long you last. If you turn your back and someone catches you, if you just literally don't do the due diligence of paying attention to a player on the field trying to catch you, like, that's not good snitching. Um, and so I would rather have someone have a two-minute game where they were fair and they stayed in the middle and both teams had fair shots and one team caught it. I would much prefer that than, as I said, a long game otherwise. Um, sure, it's really nice when it's a really fair snitch and a fair game and it's a long game, but like that's not how it happens all the time. So at minimum, I just wanted to be fair. Um, and so that's something I think as a culture that we need to be working on. I think we are getting slightly better at. And I think that players in college now are getting more invested than this past generation, this past cycle of college players did. Um, and so I'm excited. I think a lot of the risks are coming out of stitches. I saw a lot of really good college stitches this year just in the Midwest. So I'm pretty hopeful. I think things are going to change. But yeah, as a whole, I think it's as a culture, like we, like, we got to fix um, like how we are treating snitches, how snitch refs are refing snitches, just to make sure people aren't getting hurt. Because if people, like, I get hurt a lot from people charging me, like, and a lot of times it won't get called. Uh, I remember at MLQ, uh, I got flat out tackled. I had a dude fully elongate, leave his feet, trying to catch me, jumped directly into me, completely launched himself. It'd be like a launching tackle in a normal game. Um, and I told the snitch ref, I was like, hey, man, that was, like he just tackled me. Like, like he charged me. Uh, and the snitch ref was like, no, he wasn't. And I was like, all right. Well, I, uh, I know I get calls wrong sometimes, but in that particular instance, I was like, you are wrong. And I'm going to get hurt if that keeps happening. Like, I don't feel safe. Like, if, if it's hard for a snitch to trust their snitch ref if they don't feel safe when players can do stuff like that or when players can run full speed at a snitch and, like, completely bulldoze them. Um, like, that's not okay, and that needs to change. Because if people keep getting hurt from snitching or become so laborious of contact because of that, like, then no one's going to want to snitch because they have to play. Uh, so, yeah, we, we got to fix that. Or people are going to get hurt, and people aren't going to want to snitch anymore. For sure. We could we could talk all day about – that was one of the topics we even talked about as an editorial topic, talking about snitching. But uh, we're going to move on to our next mailbag question. Maybe I'll have you on again sometime. We could talk about uh, – some more snitching but our next question comes from tyler piper uh what is the impact of non-playing coaches such as yourself with columbia at the college level uh it's huge uh it's absolutely huge uh not for myself i'm like i'm not huge but uh, like college coaches in general uh i think are extremely useful and just i think non-playing coaches in general for club as well um for i think the biggest thing is just uh time management and games um, as I said before, playing on gumbo, uh, when I was in charge and I was like, basically like the de facto coach captain making decisions, we blew two huge leads. Like, and that's something that I will never forgive myself for. And it's something that if I'd been a non-playing coach, instead of actually playing a lot of those minutes, I would have been able to see more from an outside like perspective on what I could have done to probably prevent those two things from happening. Um, I probably would have noticed that our strategy wasn't working and we were going down points and we could have at least stayed out of range or at least done a better job of it. So uh, in the really practical sense, I think it's time management um, and really just game management, making sure people like the right lines are out there. Like it's just, it's so much less pressure on players to just go out there and play and not have to worry about, uh, oh, like should I go on now? Like how long do I stay on? Like if you just have a coach taking care of all of it, it just... It's, it's just let them go out there and play. Like, don't put too much on their plate. Don't make them worried about how to do this or that. Just literally let them go play. I think that's a huge, huge boon uh, to, to the game that college coaches bring. And also, too, as I was saying before, like, 
uh, as far as making programs competitive, a lot of it is just organization, right? Like UT has this huge program with like a, a hierarchy and they have a huge system in place and they have the varsity team, the JV team, and their intramural, same thing for Texas State. Um, you know, they have this huge program in place and it just takes like this organization that is necessary for those teams. Uh, a college coach just only helps that, right? Like after players have, you know, started as a freshman, gone through all four years, like become president or coach or, or sorry, or captain, and then graduated, at a lot of teams, that like senior push is almost devastating to teams for a while. Because now people are coming up and they kind of like, well, I was a freshman last year, now I'm like president or now I'm captain and I'm a sophomore. And they only had like one year to learn and now they're in charge. And so you kind of lose a lot of the experience that the leadership from the previous year had. So having that coach there that's been there for several years now um, uh, is, is huge. And basically being like, yeah, like you're new, but like I still have all the you know same stuff that we did the past two seasons. So I think it just kind of helps build that long-term growth and organization that gets lost when teams are consistently cycling through leadership. Rick Wasser with our next one here. How much did picking up ultimate more seriously help your positioning and game sense? Yeah, uh, I actually like this question. Um, so I played club ultimate, for people that don't know, I played club ultimate simultaneously with the uh, same season that I coached Curse. Uh, the first season that Curse was a team in New Orleans. Um, ultimate offered me a lot of things. One, it really made me realize like on the, the whole spectrum of like athletes, kind of how far behind Quidditch was. Um, because even at that, at that time as a Quidditch player, even though I know I wasn't like, like no one would be like, Oh, Tad is athletic. Right. Like, but like, that's not my skill set <laughs> on the field. Um, but I could still like get by, right. Like, like I'm not out of place on the field. Uh, most of the time, sometimes I definitely am, but like most of the time, whereas when I was playing ultimate athletically, I was blown off the field in like almost every single game. When I was playing club ultimate, I was playing like a mid tier, like competitive team and we play other teams and like any, first of all, I, w I went from being the coach and like getting a lot of minutes on the curse team to being like lat, like literally the worst player on the ultimate team. I was the bottom of the totem pole. There were games where I didn't go in. There were games where I would go in only when we were up a bunch or down a bunch. So either I was playing against stupid good people who were crushing my teammates better than me and then they would just slaughter me. Or I was playing against like some like 60-year-old dude who was still better than me because he's been playing Ultimate for like 20 years. But athletically, I could keep up. And so that was really cool. And that one, it kind of made me remember what it felt like to like not be... Uh, even like a decent player, right? Just to be like the bottom. And it, to me, it was interesting seeing players I coached on Curse who were really upset with the amount of time that they were getting because they felt like obligated to more and they felt like they needed more. And especially playing that Ultimate team where I was the last string and like there's such a huge culture in Ultimate, like such a friendly, like the spirit of the game. And a lot of it even goes to your teammates of like when your teammates are on the field, you're really supportive. Like you're in their ear talking to them. Hey, like you're the last back. Watch for that like deep run. Like watch for that huck to be back. Hey, you're first. You know, they're sliding left, whatever. What defense it even? Like, like what offense they're running? Like what defense they're running? Like there's constant communication. Uh, when there's like stoppage for calls, people run out there with water, which in Quidditch that's starting to become a bigger thing. Um, there's play calls. Uh, not... <laughs> 
if you ever watch Boom Train film, you'll probably hear it, and you probably heard it with Frost film from the year I played too. But uh, a call that I bring from Ultimate, like I brought over from Ultimate, is Chili, which is like slow down a play, like instead of like running a fast break, like slow it down, like reset. So I call it Chili a lot, like yell that a lot, like simple stuff like that. Um, stuff I brought over from Ultimate, but um. In general, I think cross-training sports is really helpful for just kind of having a better under, like, kind of athletic intuition for, like, how people move athletically in different ways, um, and kind of, like, watching different sports gives you a good idea of just, like, the general strategic mind. It opens up your mind a lot about, like, just kind of what players are capable of. So in that aspect, uh, a lot of it came there, but I, I really value that time playing Ultimate because I think it was ultimately um, really humbling. And really kind of like if I'm like the it's it's kind of the same attitude that kind of got rekindled on Boom Train about being just kind of like a role player and kind of knowing your place and being like, I'm going to support my teammates on the field as much as they're out there. But when I'm out there, I'm going to like work my butt off because I'm only going to get like one or two minutes like to do so. And I think it's just so much better than a lot of Quidditch players that have like a feel obligated to get playing time kind of mentality. And it can be really toxic and negative to a team when they feel like they have to get playing time versus kind of earning it in a competitive setting. Um, so that was huge for me in that aspect was kind of that like mentality of being the worst player on a team and still being a good teammate and still like being confident in your abilities when you're on the field. That is a very interesting crossover there. That's very cool. Jeanette High wants to know your favorite memory from the past quid season. Oh, Jeanette's going to love this one. Uh, I think it's probably when we beat Cav again at uh, Crescent City. Um, And there's two moments in particular that I really enjoyed from that. One was that Jeanette, who I've been super proud of her as a teammate, man. She's improved so much, like so, so much. Like, it's insane. I mean, I've seen a lot of players improve on Boom Train. Her, Melinda Stopp, has also, like, just absolutely come up as a chaser. Um, and there was a play where Jeanette gets, like, kind of gets the ball, I think kind of awkwardly, like, on the corner of a hoop. And then Colin Friday comes out to, like, stuff her with with both arms. And she stiff arms him and then just, like, puts it in the hoop over him. And I remember being on the field, and I was, like, hype. I was so excited for her. Because, one, I knew that that was such a big play for her, like, for her confidence and her abilities. But, two, it looked cool. And, like, it was just hype. It was a great play. Like, it just – what what makes me feel really uh, – what makes me feel like Boom Train is special is really the fact that, like, we are just a, a deep, like, m- mechanical team. Like, we are a machine, like, top to bottom. Like, there's not a line that it's like, oh, this is, like, they, this is the bad line we have to beat, you know what I mean? Like, players just step up and every, like, everyone can score, uh, which I think is what makes us dangerous and why I think we're a good team is because we have that. Um, but also, just also in that game, Matt Brown and I have just a really good series with Cole and Augie on Sitch on Pitch, which ended up winning us the game. Um, and so that was, like, huge. I mean, like, and as I said before, uh, as, for my personal growth as a player, uh, but going from, like, really trying to ride that line of, like, mental toughness and, like, trying to figure out, like, how to play without playing shook, but also, like, without throwing the ball away and playing stupid, um, to me, that was, like, kind of gratification for, like, working on myself as a player and trying to just to the new kind of speedy boy beater meta. So, um, yeah, so that was really nice. And uh, it was it was something that I was really excited for this year was that win. Shout out to all of them. They're all great players. Yeah, they're, they're studs, man. Cole made this insane play where I still don't know what the ruling on it technically is because it was so cool and so random. But I, like, beat him, and the ball went up in the air, and it went, like, I beat him, and the ball flew up, and it went over the soft boundary. 
And so Cole, like, beelines, like, sprints and chases the ball and catches it off, like, off the field. Um, and, like, play stops. And everyone's like, so what happens? Like, did he catch it technically? Is he beat? Uh, does he get it at the line? And I think they ended up giving him the ball inside the boundary. Um which I don't know if that's the right call, but outside of that, the play was insane. I remember, I think, like, I'm pretty sure I told him, like, hey, that was a cool play, like, great catch, Cole. <laughs> like, that was, like, I played with Cole before. Uh, fancy teams knew him from LSU. Uh, Love the guy. Uh, so, yeah, that was a great play. I remember just being, like, so confused, but also, like, it was just a stupid athletic play. I mean, he's, him and Augie are both really fast, and so to see him, like, make that kind of quick reflex play and, like, chase that ball down and catch it off the boundary, that was, like, it was totally sick. I loved it. That's amazing. Callan Cupid would like to know, what's your best advice for new beaters? Oh, man. I think I already kind of hinted at it. I think it's uh, be confident in yourself, but don't play shook. That's really what it is. Um, and it's something that, uh, like me coaching uh, Peyton uh, on, on on Columbia, who is, uh, honestly, it's deserved, man. He's basically a mini-me. Like, he'll, go out <laughs> of, he'll like, go out of his way and make these, like, really dumb, like, aggressive plays. And I'm just like, oh, of course, of course God would give me a player like myself to coach. Um, and so, um, uh, yeah, it's really just like, I think it's it's playing confidently. And then two, just like playing smart. Um, and, and to do it really simple and easy, as I said, it's, it's playing confidently and don't play shook. And when I say play shook, um, I think that means basically playing like too conservative. Like you're scared of being like taken out of a play by the other player. Like... Because once you do that, like, if they have you backing up into your hoops, like, you're basically just going to be useless. Um, if they are making you throw back every time or they're, you know, just beating you every time, like, if I mean, if you just get down on yourself. I mean, it's so easy to just, like, get beat up on by a good beater for, like, two minutes and then your confidence is just shot. And, like, you don't even have faith in, like, your arm anymore and you'll just miss beats. And, like, I mean, I see it happen. I go through it. Uh, Jeremy Hoffman, like, famously... Uh, can go through it too sometimes. That's something that we really bonded over was uh, we were both just get in our heads a lot. But like Jeremy, when he, like when Jeremy's on fire, Jeremy is one of I think the best beaters to ever played Quidditch. But then you have games where they're super inconsistent, and I just I mean they're still nine times out of ten balling out, right? Like me, I'm like maybe one time out of ten I might ball out, but like yeah, like it's just I think it's just don't play shook. That's really what it is. Do not play shook. Play your game. Be confident. You get that on a t-shirt. Do not play Shook. Do not play Tad Shook. Walters. I should. That's a, that's a great slogan. I should put that on my arm. I should get that too. And just get it right there in the forearm. <laughs> Caleb Van Buren, if you were given sole control of Quidditch in the United States, what changes would you make? <laughs> in, in, order to, in order to speed this along, give me like one change. Uh, I'll give you two, but still short. One is okay. change the name. Uh, and everything involved in Quidditch uh, and get it to, like, let's start getting money in it, plain and simple. I want investors. I want MLQ to pop off real big. I want stipends for players. Uh, two is, I've talked about this a million times over and argued with people all over the internet for it, but uh, I would love to change the season structure to reflect almost like Ultimate Frisbee does. I think that'll encourage a lot of growth. And for people who haven't heard me talk about it, that means a college season uh, through the normal college year uh, where the fall is either unofficial or basically means less in the standings to encourage teams to actually practice uh, and rotate players in um, and work on it instead of just trying to get ready for regionals in the fall. Um, And then also all spring regionals, uh, all spring nationals, obviously. Oh, yes. So all spring regionals, nationals, and then doing club Quidditch 
the same time, or at least with a little bit of overlap through the summer with MLQ. Um, so that college players could play club season and then take a lot of that information back to their uh, teams. Because that's what happens in, in Club Ultimate. You have a lot of college players will play teams. And a lot of club teams are just made up of college players. Like there was a club team I played against in New Orleans that they were literally just a bunch of the University of Alabama's B, like JV Ultimate team. Started a club Ultimate team in the summer. And they had fun and they played with each other and had a great time. And they had some actual club players on their team and it's just like it's a great learning experience it's a great way for people who have the opportunity to play year-round all the college kids who have their summers off to still play year-round and quite frankly i love quidditch i don't want to play year-round anymore man i have other stuff to do <laughs> like like i'm working a bunch like i'd rather just play really hard in the summer and and be done with it for a year and go coach columbia and volunteer yeah i feel that i remember that first summer i took off from mlq it was like oh Oh, this is nice. Yeah, I've only taken I've only taken one season off from Quidditch so far, and it was the summer of this past MLQ season. Uh, and I was really bummed. I really because first year of two hand tackling, which I'm like so insanely. I still haven't done it yet, and I'm so excited to do it. And also excited this summer I didn't get to. Uh, ben Strauss with our next question. Looking back on it, what's the worst <laughs> advice you've ever given someone playing Quidditch? Does it keep you up at night? I'm guessing based on your previous answers that it probably does. Yeah, uh, this is a rough one, man. Uh, there's so many things. There's millions and there's pot. No, not millions. I'm not that. <laughs> I haven't even said that many things. Uh, <laughs> there's there's definitely dozens of things I could ask, but I think there's one that's probably just the most comical, and I think a lot of people will think this is funny. Uh, I remember at one point when Tulane was starting to like get as good as Loyola, and like every game we played was snitch range, and it was mostly in part to like two chasers, Todd Matthew and. Nick Gobert, oh, uh, and L. Wong, those three, they, they were all athletes, uh, and then Josh playing beater, um, uh, and I, like, well, sorry, like Josh Mansfield playing beater, and I remember one time, I think we just played a game with them, uh, and I do think part of me actually did think this, because I was like, because Josh is a perfectly good shooter when he chases, uh, and he has a really good Quidditch mind, I think better than most of the people on his team at that time had, uh, so I remember being like, hey, Josh, you should like chase instead of playing beater and he was already a pretty good beater then and now he's blown up to be in my opinion one of the best beaters in the country um and i feel like him and jackson uh is like the scariest beater core i could go against um but yeah i i I told josh mansfield once he should switch to chaser and i'm sure part of it was because I was just tired of playing against him at beater because he would just make me run a lot, and I hated that. But uh, two, I do think he could have helped, but I don't know if it would have helped more than not having him at beater because he was, like, such a dominating force of that position at that point for them. So I think that's probably, in my head, the one that makes me laugh a lot is telling Josh he's a switch to chaser. Hey, there, there could be worse things, so that's funny. <laughs> uh, K-Pack would like to know, is there someone you look up to in the Quidditch community and why? Oh, man. I mean, I feel like you can already probably guess this just from how much I've talked about him, but it's got to be Diggy, man. And and I, I kind of hate to say it because I know that he, like, purposefully puts in all this work and does so hard and, like, like and just works so hard and, like, cares so much about people that, like, I'm sure he expects it at this point. <laughs> like, I'm sure he's like, yeah, people love me. Uh, he's, he's not that kind of guy, but, like, uh, it's, it's Diggy, man. Like... Diggy is just one of the first people that, I mean, really, he's the first person that I feel like I've been coached by in Quidditch. Like, um, I mean, I've had opportunities where, like, maybe, like, Team USA camps, uh, like, I've gotten feedback from, like, Cito and stuff before, and players before that I really respected. 
Um, and I think, too, it's just, like, part of it's just, like, how I talked, I think. Because, like I said, I think I talk with, like, a lot of confidence. And a lot of, a lot of when I talk about, like, me playing can sound arrogant when a lot of times it's just me being like, oh, yeah, like, that happened. And, like, you can even be like, oh, yeah, like, I, I pulled someone for, like, two minutes, you know? Like, that can happen. But to a lot of people it sounds arrogant. But, like, Diggy is someone that I feel we can have a conversation with and be like, oh, yeah, like, I was really, like, I sucked for, like, four minutes. Or, like, oh, yeah, dude, you, like, you, you played out of your mind for, like, three minutes. But, like, you should, like, like fix these things. He's just, he's so good at giving feedback while, like, still affirming you and still being positive. Um, and, like, I just, uh, uh, I, I really look up to him and really value his experience um, and just like how he talks to people. Cause he also puts in a lot of work learning how to talk to people and how to like, I think that's the biggest part of it. Like yeah, you can tell that he like cares and that he's like curated how he talks to people. Um, and that's something that I just think is like, so he's just, he's putting in so much work. He's putting more work than anyone else at it. Um, so I, yeah, I absolutely love the guy. Danny Yacoub would like to know a player you've always wanted as a teammate. And why is it not me? <laughs> and Danny, I would love to be a teammate with you, babe. Uh, man, this is a really tough one. Um, it doesn't really count because it was just Storm, but Jackson Johnson is probably one of my best friends in Quidditch, and we uh, we played on the San Marcos Storm, which is a Texas Seceed League team, uh, and I played it the first season they had it. I basically went to one tournament in San Marcos and got drunk, and me and Jackson had what's called the Rip It Line, which has since been proliferated throughout the rest of the, the country, maybe even the world, about ripping shots, shooting your shots. But uh, literally the idea of the Rip It Line was that Jackson would be the ball carrier, and I'd go to, like, the back of the, the field, and Jackson would shoot it as hard as he could. And if he missed, I'd pick it up, and I would shoot it as hard as I could. <laughs> and then Jackson would do that on the other side, and we'd do it till we score it. Uh, it didn't work though because at that specific time that we went in our beaters just like we kept getting pressed and so I kept having to run from the back to help reset and I just got exhausted but if you have the beaters to do it that's that's the best line to possibly do Quidditch with and he kind of does it a little bit like watch their cavalry game and like they'll shoot like a little shorter not exaggerated very front very back but like they'll shoot back and forth a little bit and try to get those shots off um but yeah, I'd say I'd say probably Jackson. I I played like we played on a fancy team together outside of that too. But like I would love to play with Jackson for like a season, for like as an actual teammate. Uh, I absolutely love the dude. Love the way he plays. Um, I think our styles would benefit each other really well too. Um, so yeah, I would love to play with Jackson. I think yeah, he'd be a really cool guy to play with. Luke Yeager would like to know, uh, what is your Quidditch win that you think about the most, and the Quidditch loss that keeps you up at night? Oh, man, that's tough. All right, Quidditch win, I think, about the most. Um, I think that one has to be our first win over Calvary. Um, I think the first time we played them at uh, Edwards versus Villains, which was a crazy game, tons of play stoppages. It went to overtime, and watching that game, it was like the most basketball-esque, like, oh, we just fouled properly, you know, like the last two minutes of basketball. That's kind of how it felt, because the last, the last like, ten seconds of that game were, like, basically, there was, like, four play stoppages, and they kept stopping, and, like, we kept, like, Alyssa Marasa kept, like, I think accidentally fouling or whatever, and we ended up just winning, out. and, like, Alyssa had this amazing play where um, balls in the backfield, I think Casey Irwin has it. Marty Bermudez is, like, in the keeper zone on the other side of the hoops. And then Alyssa is, like, in front of Marty. 
Um, and so the ball gets placed. Archer's like a second and a half, two seconds on the clock, and and, and it's in it's in overtime, and we're up ten, I believe. Um, and Casey passes it to Marty, and Alyssa hits Marty, and Marty shoots, and it goes over the top hoop. And that hit from Alyssa, I to this day, I'm just like she is one of my she she's one of my favorite people to play with because uh, she lays hits like she it. Me and her are both very similar in that we're both pretty slow, but like if if we can touch you, like you're on the ground, and so that's something that uh, I really value her as a teammate, especially on the chasing side because she's so physical and like yeah, and she she tackled Marty and he made him miss that shot, and we won the game. It was one of those things where, for us, it was like, it was a litmus test for Boom Train. I mean, we'd only played college teams in the Midwest, and we'd played Frost I think at that point like once or twice. And so for us going to hear those villains and getting that win was like, oh, like, we're out here. You know what I mean? Like, like we can do this. Even though, like, we were disappointed. I mean, we were excited to win, obviously, especially against Cav. Um, but uh, I think especially the idea that, like, we, especially me and Dickie, were like, we played poorly. You know, but so did Cav. I think Cav, Cav played poorly that game, too. And I think we got lucky, and I think we came out with a win. Um, and that just kind of stuck with us. And it was like, we still need to work harder and we still need to get better but like we're there you know what I mean like we can compete with the best of them so that was kind of like the 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 almost like letting out the sigh of relief because we know that we're like ready to start competing um and then on the flip side of that man it I I feel like the easy answer is that final four loss um and but I think just for uh Easy, you know, just for uh, for a little bit of a different look. Um, I'll say one was World Cup seven season. We're at regionals. We're struggling to qualify, and this really I didn't qualify. But we had to go to nationals that year. Um, I went as a snitch, uh, but so we didn't qualify. We're playing a playing game for a bid against Texas State's B team, Sharknados, and it's snitch range. Uh, we're such on pitch, feel really confident. We have good beaters. We have a good seeker. Uh, the snitch keeps falling over and over again. And it's like, I don't really mind. Cause like I said, we're like, we're running the switch on pitch game. It's like a non-issue and, uh, we're getting closer. I'm like, whatever. And then at one point I remember there was this very small person and I like very lazily just like kind of chucked a bludger at her and I missed and I was, like, really irritated. Instead of just going to get that ball, I just, like, ran up and just obliterated her. I just, like, just, like, took the soul out of her life. And I hit her, and she held on to the ball. And I was even more mad. And so I start, like, yanking the ball. And I guess I did it from behind, because then I see the AR's hand go up. And I'm like, oh, man, I'm about to get a card for this. But I'm still yanking the ball. And also, she's, like, freaking out at this point. She doesn't know what's happening. She's, like, yelling and screaming. And I'm like, I feel like a monster. And I was like, what have I done? I feel really bad. And then I'm like, I just, like, kind of let it go. And right as I do that, I turn. And the Sharknado Seeker came up behind the snitch and pulled it. And we lost the game. And we were out. Like, you know, like, like we couldn't qualify for nationals. Um. And that moment was really big, especially coming off that D2 appearance, the finals appearance, like, the year before. Uh, and, like, I don't know. I just, yeah, that one just felt really bad. I think that was one of the, 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 that was one of the few times I've cried, like, wholeheartedly after a game. There's been a couple of those, and that was one of them. And I remember uh, I was really upset. 
talked to my team, and then Baylor, I was really good friends with that Baylor team, that, like, old Baylor team at the time, they, like, surrounded me and, like, hugged me as I, like, cried, so I was so upset that we, that we lost, and that we wouldn't be able to go to nationals, and that was 100% my fault, it was, like, literally 100% my fault, like, if I just made that beat, or even just not made that dumb play, like, we would have still been in the game to make that play, so, I, I think about that a lot, just because of how my own faults created that opportunity, like, for another team. That is absolutely brutal, but I, like, I don't know, it it points to you being introspective and self-reflective on those things. It's a tough one. That was a tough one. But I, I do want to give credit, though, because, uh, man, that Cav boom train loss hit hard in such a different way. Like, it's, it, it, it was soul crushing. That one was like more soul crushing. Like I was like, I was too speechless to cry. You know what I mean? Like I was so upset, uh, that yeah, like a team we had beat before. Um, and we expected to have a close game with again, uh, that they just dismantled us. They completely took us apart and they were just more disciplined at the end of the day. I mean, at it, at the time when we lost immediately when we lost, I remember being really bitter and I was like, man, the rules incentivize like you know, the Cav wall, which I don't blame them for playing it. I, I was mad at the rules, you know, which I, I still think the rules incentivize, like, really clustery defenses that don't incentivize playing open field defense. Um, and that's something that I think is still a problem in the sport. But that being said, I was really bitter. I was mad. I was mad at the rules. Um, I was like, what could we have done, you know? And then I go on to see Heat put up, like, plus 30 on him in the finals, like, before losing. And I was like, there are ways to beat it. And I still do think it is it is unfair, and I think it's something that needs to be fixed. At the same time, especially watching the game again, it was like no team scored for the first, like, eight or nine minutes. Like, it was 0-0 zero to zero for, like, the first almost 10 minutes of that game. And so looking back on it, I'm just like, man, they just outdisciplined us. Like, if we had just kept our cool the entire time and not gotten frustrated about not scoring, because they weren't scoring either, uh, we really could have stayed in there. And we just, we got sloppy. We stopped playing our defense. We had players that went in there, myself included, and didn't play the defense properly. That really was our bread and butter. Like our trap defense kept us in every single game. It was, I think the best defense I've ever seen a team play was that defense. Like, like, like overall around like the, the board, like throughout a whole season. Cause we spent so much time really just working just on the defense. Honestly, too much time. That's why we play a different defense now. But Man, like, that defense was great. And to see players not do it because of lack of discipline and that ruined it for us was, like, in post, like, watching that game on film, it was it was rough. Um, and that was kind of a learning thing to be like, all right, it, just, it came down to discipline and, discipline and mental toughness. We've talked a lot about Nathan Digman, and Nathan Digman has talked a lot about that game. And now he <laughs> has a question for you. Uh, what's the number one thing you've learned from everyone's... F- Every beater's favorite beater. I think, I, meant, I think he meant to say your favorite beater's favorite beater, which is a phrase I came up with on uh, on the uh, the all timer draft. I was talking about Matt Brown because I think there are a lot of beaters <laughs> who there are a lot of beaters who do like the like there are a lot of good beaters. I'll start with that, and then there's a lot of beaters who do the subtle good things, and that like in the same way that like a lot of musicians will like listen to certain bands that like only musicians people that get music really like like a uh, snarky puppy is one that just comes to mind is one like all my music friends at Loyola all the jazz kids love this band and like people that don't listen to music or don't play instruments will probably have very little interest in bands like snarky puppy but the idea is there and the same thing with comics like there's a comics comic right like like comics love Bill Burr <laughs> and a lot of people in the general stream love him too but like comics like if you say their favorite a lot of people say Bill Burr right like 
He is a comics comic. And the same thing with Quidditch players. I think there are Quidditch players that is like, there's a Quidditch player's Quidditch player. And I think Matt Brown is that. Matt Brown is a player that, like, really good beaters can, like, see Matt. And even though he doesn't do really flashy things, like, you know, like he's not a big split jump guy or, like, you know, he won't have a series where he catches, like, eight bludgers in a row and deflects something and, like, makes these huge beats. But he's so technically sound that he's so impressive. And that's why not only other beaters, I think, like him, I mean... So Justin DeWick, like in Mizzou, he talks about how great uh, Matt Brown is. And he's basically a mini Matt Brown himself. I mean, he's a college Matt Brown at that point. Like, he just, Matt plays with so much discipline. And that's something that I've had to learn as well. Because as I said, I was trying to adjust to this new meta. And I've definitely played in the old meta of where you could have a beater just uh, have, you know, a couple of really good plays. And those good plays would not only, one, have a practical effect on the game, but also, like, there's a mental effect, I think, when a beater is like going off and is like balling out and you're playing against them, I think that that it hurts that team, right? Like I remember, oh man, I remember I used to go on the field and people on the other team would be like, hey, watch out, Tad's on. Like, and that would just like juice me up. Like when I hear another team say that, I'm like, it's game over. I was like, how can you expect to contend when you're like accounting just for me being on the field, right? And that's why I refuse to say that when other players on other teams are on the field because I know what a mental edge and inherently takes away from yourself by mentioning that. Um, and so uh, that was a thing for a while, is you have players who were just like uh, really good and would have these huge flashy moments. But when you calculate a plus minus or when you look at like, oh yeah, they caused a goal on this way, but then they also gave up two goals on really dumb things on the other side of the ball. It's like, Matt doesn't do that, right? It's uh, the biggest thing that I learned from really Matt um, it was that first season of India is Matt and Jeremy do this the best. And it's basically being like, um, uh, like low risk, high reward kind of deal. Uh, because you see a lot of times you'll see players really just, as I said, ball out for like 30 seconds and then like lose bludger control. And it's like, man, that press was cool. You caused a reset, also lost your bludger and you're going to get scored and like, like, and then they get scored on. So it's like, Hey, cool press off that catch and deflect and you beat both their beaters. But like at the end of the play, you still got scored on. Um, and that just like just getting past that idea that those plays where you do cool stuff are the only metrics of measuring a beater, I think is the biggest thing I've learned from specifically Matt and Jeremy um, and just playing with them and watching, especially how Matt plays. He's just a machine. Like even when he lo- like he he wins big and he loses small. I think that's the better way to put it. And that like he'll make these like fairly low risk or even a high risk play and he wins of them. But when he loses, he's not losing his bludger like in the open field. He's making sure he's throwing it back. Or when he loses, you know, he's not putting his teammates in a bad position, right? I think that's the biggest thing is that if you can just play a whole game and win big and lose small, you're going to come out on top instead of like only winning big and then also losing big sometimes. Like it's just, it's, it's sure. You might get a couple flashy plays. You might create a goal or two off it. But at the end of the day, as your whole evaluation as a player in that game, it's not going to be as good as as you minimizing your losses um, and really making the most of your wins. Um, and that's something that I think Matt does extremely well, probably better than I think just about any other player in the game. So I think that's probably the biggest thing I've learned from him. Uh, Adil Abdallah with a, uh, a loaded question I've here, heard I this think. One. Yeah. Uh, he says, a problem I think snitching has is that, in my experience, the buff, big, and tall snitches have an advantage over skinny and smaller ones, uh, and non-males only roles seem to be to defensive seek at most. 
uh, what can we do to make the snitch slash seeker game more inclusive for all body types and genders? Should we even care if it is inclusive to all body types? Uh, so I'll do it backwards. I'll answer the last thing first. One, um, I don't think it needs to be inclusive to all body types. I don't think we need to change the rules to make people good at, you know what I mean? Like to make certain players good at snitching. Um, at the same time, I do think, as I said before, that we need to make sure that we're calling fouls appropriately so players aren't getting hurt because a six foot person, a six foot tall, 200 pound person charging a person my size is going to be different than charging a person like Jeanette High's size, right? Um, as a snitch. And so that's something that needs to be taken care of. Like, I, I can handle it, right? Like, I'm big enough to handle it, but players that aren't, like, that's, that's unfair. So making sure that the rules are being standardized across the board to protect all players, because um, I still get hurt from those too. So I can't even imagine how someone half my size um, is going to take that same contact, right? Because, um, like, I, I still get hurt all the time from those. Um, so I think that's a big part of it. I don't think we should be accommodating. I think I think we just need to like really make sure we're like actually following the rules, make sure we're keeping people safe with how we're checking the snitch and seeker rules. Um, two, uh, I think that adding the uh, the rule into basically uh, that lets the seeker count towards the uh, was a gender maximum rule. Um, I think is awesome. Um, I, I I love that now. There's basically an, a built-in incentive. Uh, or like a reason to let women and non-binary players seek, which before wasn't, uh, which has honestly been wild to me because it's all technique anyway. Like, sure, the guys that are like six foot three and like super long, like the Nathan Ellerts of the world and the Darren Crees of the world are going to have an innate advantage. But like, Harry Greenhouse is tiny. Like, he's a tiny person. And it's like, it's good form. Uh, it helps that he's strong and athletic, but anyone can beat like build strong and athletic you know what i mean like you can work on that um and so it's really been really refreshing i mean honestly like some of the best like form seekers i've seen for a while uh like missy spinagle was one that i remember she's teaching me in a fancy tournament and she was so she was better than any seeker at that tournament she was so good like it's all about technique um especially as a lot of good seeker techniques aren't strength based a lot of it is like timing um and a lot of it is just pure form so i think really just Players, coaches, leaders on teams just need to be really opening up opportunities for players of all uh, of, of all genders, of all races, to be able to play all positions. Um, and like, because we talked about it before, there are very few like black ball carriers, right? And there's very few women seeking. There's very few women ball carriers, and that's something that I think just needs to be fixed in general. Um, and I think that once we see players and leaders giving opportunities to women uh, and to players of color. Um, and to non-binary players, et cetera, and like all the other marginalized players, uh, I think we're going to start seeing just a lot more diversity in the types of not only play styles we have, but just the types of players we see making plays. And you're going to see like really cool new stuff. Like I love seeing Rachel Heald with the ball in her hands, right? Like she's so tall that like if she can get past people, like she can pass over anyone, and she has like, a good field vision. Like yeah, like she's also a great off-ball option because she's so tall, obviously. But like. It's really cool like to see players put in roles that you know, traditionally you wouldn't see them elsewhere. So a uh, really big fan of that and think we should be doing that for Seeking as well. Um, but as far as um, as far as far how snitching lends itself to like bigger people like myself, uh, I wouldn't quite say buff. It's definitely not something I've ever been accused of being before. But as far as being six foot one and having, uh, uh, you know, like these thick, thick old donk 
in the back. Uh, that is the main reason why people can't catch a snitch when I snitch is because I just have a huge butt. Uh, that's really it. But when it comes down to it, like it's all just technique. I think there's, I think there needs to be uh, like more resources teaching players how to snitch properly, like how to maintain an athletic stance, how to line up seekers when they're coming after you, things that aren't inherently built towards big people. Um, I just feel like a lot of small stitches inherent. They get thrown into games, and they're scared that they're going to get caught quick. So they do what they know best, and that's run around. And then when they're tired, they get caught instantly. Um, so I think a lot of it is just building up skills. I've seen small snitches really – I mean, Zach Miller is one. He's a small snitch. He's solid quality. And, like, he just has good, like, fundamentals, right? Like, good abilities. Like, he breaks down. He keep like, most – I see so many snitches do not just keep seekers at arm's length. Like – I always have hands on seekers at all times. I'm always keeping them at arm's length. If you're not doing that, how do you expect to like keep them away from you? And that's something I do not see a lot of seekers do. And a lot of seekers think that you have to like stand your ground and push back and be strong. I hardly ever actually push weight on seekers. When seekers come after me, uh, I get into my athletic stance and I keep them at bay. And I keep like the palms of my hands on the tops of their shoulders to kind of just keep them at bay. But I never lean on them. Um, only... If I have a defensive seeker around me, well, I like I actively push them off and away. But for the most part, it's me holding my hands on their shoulders. And when they lunge, I just backpedal. I backpedal. I take steps back. I juke out of the way and guide their shoulders towards the ground or towards the sides. Um, and it's just technique. Um, it's just technique. And I think that we need to be uh, building up players uh, with those body types and just making sure there's resources available that they learn how to do these things. They don't have to rely uh, on just running around and then feeling bad when they get caught quickly because they never learned any other skills. So I think it's, it's just all technique and form that we need to be teaching people and having resources available for them. All right. I agree with a lot of that. We're running way long here. <laughs> I'm sure users are, or users, listeners, oh my gosh, I'm a software developer. Uh, <laughs> Let's let's roll through. We got like seven more questions. We're going to do this lightning round. These are these are quick quick questions. Hannah Miller, you've played for a lot of teams, lived in a lot of places. What has been your favorite place you lived? And I won't make you answer your favorite team unless you want to. Uh, I want to answer favorite team because I think they've all been favorite uh, in a lot of different ways. Um, there's like a lot of great attributes, but. Uh, favorite place to live is easily New Orleans. It's the greatest city in the world. Uh, if I didn't have to move up here for comedy because there's like not really a scene in New Orleans, I would have stayed there forever. Wow, all right. Uh, K-Pack, what is your favorite song to play on the ukulele? Oh, man. Uh, I haven't played ukulele forever. I used to play it. It was a little cringy of a, of a, of a college thing I used to do. It was, I was trying to play music uh, because my whole school is a music school, and that was like the easiest instrument to learn. Uh, for a while, I, I used to do this pretty decent cover of... Uh, most Beautiful Girl in the Room by Flight of the Concords. That's uh, pretty easy to play. So every time I do see ukulele, I usually bust that out. Uh, to the chagrin of everyone else around me. <laughs> Nathan Digman once more. How has Whoop changed your life? This is his like his like subscription Fitbit thing. Yes. Uh, yes. So Whoop uh, is basically a yeah like a, a fitness tracker of sorts. It takes like biometric data. Um, the main thing it, I'm sure Diggy's talked about it a ton before, uh, people that don't know, please check it out online. It's very cool. It's basically, um, it tells you how much you have like stretched your body, like strained your body every day based on just like living your life and your workout. 
Um, and then based on how much sleep you get and the quality of your sleep basically tells you how primed you are every day for a workout. And so it's really good to knowing how much to push yourself like kind of optimally every day. Um, but for me, it's been game changing in that, as I said, I worked, uh, I've worked a lot uh, the past couple of years. And at one point for about four months, I was working about 85 to 90 hours a week. I had two full-time jobs. Um, oh my gosh. And so I would, I would wake up at 5 a.m. and bike to work for 6 a.m. I'd work there till 2, then I'd bike to my other job for 2.30, and then I'd close and leave there on 11.30, get home, bike home, and by the time I shower, I'd be in bed about 1.30, 2 o'clock, get about three hours of sleep, and go back to work uh, for another full uh, about like 18-hour day, uh, like 16 to 18-hour day. So I was doing that for about four months, um, and I was so insanely sleep-deprived. I was taking a lot of caffeine. It was really unhealthy. I was eating poorly, um, and that was... Um, like that kind of just, I got better about it. I was working a lot less. So like 60, 70 hour weeks, so I was still not getting a lot of sleep. And I always kind of prided myself on my ability to function while sleep deprived. Um, especially over the course of like a long time, like weeks and days and months. But, um, man, after I got the whoop and it kept telling me basically like how, how bad it was for me, it'd be like, I have like 10% recovery instead of like what I should have, which is anywhere from like a 40 to like a 90 but it'd be like 10 percent recovery like every day it'd be like you're not getting good sleep you got like two and a half hours of sleep like seeing the numbers and the data completely switched me around and then through covid i've been able to you know sleep more and be able to sleep in um but like now that i'm working again i already have way better sleep habits like than i did look before and it's all because of whoop and then it's also helped me just like see the data as far as workout goes. I've never, I've never been eating healthier than I have now. And I've never been working out more consistently and felt better, like and have my body feel as good as it does since owning this whoop. And so, um, the COVID and my time off and the time I've had to dedicate myself to this is a big part of it, but the whoop itself is also a big part of it too. Wow. All right. Uh, David Bonas, what do shooters got to do? Oh, they got to shoot, baby. You know what it is. <laughs> Luke Yeager. Do you have any Quidditch nicknames? Uh, man, I, I feel like I just have nicknames, man. I feel like Tad is too short of a name for so many people. So I get called like, uh, Taddy, Tiddly, Tiddles, uh, Tattletail. There's been a millions, man. My real name is Terry. So I'll get called Terry a lot. Some of my old player, like, sorry, some of my old teammates, uh, my middle name is Doyle. People just call me Terry Doyle a lot or TD, uh, just to be fun, uh, all, all kinds of stuff. Uh, I've had a bunch. Quidditch nicknames, I don't know. There's a there's a, a famous Tad is bad chant that gets thrown around every year a couple times. <laughs> so maybe that's worth something. <laughs> nice. And with our final question here, finally, Danny Yacoub, Ellie Marcus <laughs> thinks that Peyton Jay is crazy for looking up to you as a role model. Tell us why she is the crazy one. <laughs> oh, Allie. I love Allie. We have such a beautiful, weird relationship uh where she hates my guts but i think so highly of her um uh i i mean honestly i'll agree with Allie. i think it's crazy that anyone looks up to me um i feel like anyone that has had uh, a ton of like mental growth uh can really just like it's so easy like to look back and just like see so many mistakes you've made or things you've done wrong and like know that you're trying to better yourself and like you're still learning and so it it's hard to even like feel like people look up to me um, because I feel like so like undeserving of it. Um, but I will say that like, man, I, I absolutely love nothing more than like literally coaching these players. Like I just, I wish I'd had someone like me 
to tell me what I was doing wrong in, in all aspects, physically, uh, like on the field, uh, mentally on the field, or just being a better teammate. Um, I, I, I really wish I had had someone in my corner. And so like all I can hope for is that I can like do a good service by these kids and by these players that do look up to me and be a good role model for them, um, not only in my actions, but in how I play on the field, uh, but also like in how I give advice and, and like in how I talk to them and how I, uh, you know, like talk to the community. So that's just something I've been trying to be better about because I know as a lot of people will probably remember me from years ago when I was like just the internet troll. <laughs> I was the worst and I was just, I uh, loved arguing with people. I loved heckling people after games, which to be fair, I'll still throw in a good heckle every now and then, but I'm way nicer about it now. And it's usually just to be funny. But um, yeah, man, I just, uh, anyone that looks up to me, uh, thank you. <laughs> I appreciate it and I'll try to do right by people. But like, yeah. At the end of the day, um, Allie's great, Peyton's great, super excited to have the opportunity to coach someone that's like so open to learning like him. Uh, thank you everyone who submitted a mailbag question. If you'd like to submit one in the future, you can comment it on the post that we put at the Homes at Home Facebook page or in the USQ Great Lakes region uh, forum page, or you can message myself, Matt Dwyer, or the Homes at Home page if you want your question included anonymously. All right, let's bring this on home. Uh, how have you been staying sane during quarantine, Tad? Uh, staying sane during quarantine, it has been, one, uh, a very consistent workout regimen, um, and also eating super, super healthy. Uh, as I said, this is the healthiest I've ever eaten in my entire life. Uh, like, very, very little, if any, takeout, like, no added sugar, it's been wild. Lots of greens, lots of fish. Uh, lots of nuts, a lot of fruit. Like it's it's pretty insane. I'm already seeing the returns, and it's just like between that, the workout regimen, actually getting sleep. Like I literally feel better than I've ever felt in my entire life. That's awesome. That's amazing. Uh, you listening to anything? Watching any shows? Playing games? Reading books? Oh man, uh, I just started watching Lovecraft Country with my roommates and that's been absolutely phenomenal uh ap bio uh is something that my roommates have been in and i remember not being sold on it originally and it's a phenomenal show super fun and glenn harrowton from always always sunny in philadelphia as far as music goes uh, i've been getting really into continuing getting into anderson pock who i've loved for a while uh suede is a project with no worries is a killer song highly recommend everyone listening to it also we've been really into like some conway twitty again recently which i used to listen to when i was younger but it's really been hitting hard. Slow Hand by Conway Twitty. Absolute bop. Real sexy song. Everyone should check it out. Do you have any words of wisdom you'd like to offer to the Quidditch community? Uh, just remember that shooters gotta shoot and don't play shook. That's... <laughs> oh man, that's that's the front and back of the shirt. Shooters got a shirt and then on the back it don't says play... don't play shook. I'll do it as a, like a fundraiser for Columbia. We'll, do, we'll be fine. It'll be a huge thing. I honestly put it on a tank. I'll probably buy it. <laughs> Uh, do you have anything you'd like to promote? Any social media art? You mentioned doing comedy. I don't know if you have like a tight five on YouTube or something like that. <laughs> uh, it's floating around. It might be privately listed. Uh, I mean, you can follow me on uh, uh, on Twitter. Tiddly Tales, I think, is the handle. Uh, I usually put some of my bits that I try out on there. Um, and then outside of that, like, please, please, please share and donate that Columbia uh, College uh, Quidditch Scholarship uh, page. We really want to get 10000 by December. So please share that. Please donate. Uh, talk about it, everything. 
Bing bong, Matt from the future here, hi. So Tad's computer died, and when we went to go record the rest of this, he apparently didn't record the ending of this podcast and sent me the audio file, and it's blank, and then after we end, it's him talking to his roommates for 15 minutes about Fortnite and takeout, I think. I don't know, it's real quiet. Anyways, we normally end every week with a hot take. Tad's hot take was that Boom Train was going to be the best team this season, that they would have won nationals. So you can at him and and get his uh, reasoning for that. Otherwise, I'd like to thank Tad, as I did when we actually recorded, for coming on and talking to us at length. Uh, and I'd like to thank you all for listening. This has been quite a long podcast. You're quite a trooper, but I love and appreciate you and all the support that you give this podcast. So thank you very much, everyone. And until next time, stay gold. the hell out of that interview. Oh, yeah? Yeah, dude. This guy's interviewing me about that Quidditch scholarship, and there's some good mailbag questions from listeners. Wanted to hear about what I had to say. So you guys trying to rip or what?